Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spoop Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. So yeah, well, you're not going to have like a snappy intro this time, guys. We got a big episode. I figure we just jump right into it, right, Aaron? Hell yeah. We are finally, it's only been 100 plus episodes, finally talking about what is known as the scariest movie of all time, question mark? Fucking William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Hell yeah. Yeah. And joining us, because this is such a big one, uh, we have my sister-in-law Lauren and Heather joining us once again. I want to say our first and most common guest on our podcast. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hell yeah. Surprise, bitch. Thought you'd seen the last of me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like usual, welcome to another episode of Watch Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron and me, the cowardly craven Derek, which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Yeah, after 100 plus episodes, that intro is just totally not at all sweaty. Love it. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Before we get into it, how are you guys doing? Good. I'm doing well. I'm so glad you guys had me back on for this one. It's been too long, and, and this is such a, a major movie. Did you guys send me the, the link to save this recording? Yeah, I sent it to you earlier. Did you, Aaron? I think so, right? Or did you send it, Derek? Oh, wait, I see... I didn't send it. I just got an, an email. Wait, hang on. Okay, it's fine. I can edit this out. The link just opened a picture of a cassette tape. What? And a file that says, play me. I think I'm going to have to play this audio file, you guys. Uh, okay. That sounds spammy as hell, Lauren. What are you doing? Don't get a virus. Hello, Derek. What? For too long, you have disparaged early 2000s horror films. Including the Mummy, Derek. starring Brendan Fraser. It was it was the second one, which you will deny saying that, but you totally did because I was there. Now you will be the one disparaged, Lauren. You must record your episode on the film Saw by the time this analog clock what clock gets to seven forty five. What what? It's like nine already. Yeah, does he know what time zone you're in? If you do not, the incendiary device placed beneath your seat Wait, what? will implode, eviscerating you with nails and syringes and teeny tiny pieces of glass before burning you and your stupid hair to a crisp. This got weirdly personal. Think of it like a flaming nail gun. The clock is ticking, Derek. Make your choice. 
hey, I have a request. I have a request. Can you add some, like, hornets? Just add some hornets. Add some hornets for <laughs> Fuck <Derek>. you, Aaron. <laughs> Guys, that sounded really serious. I think we're gonna have to talk about Saw. <sighs> yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Derek, I don't know who that was, whoever that scary person was. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should totally just do Saw instead. Fuck yeah. Of the Exorcist. <laughs> New metal motherfuckers. <laughs> 2004, here we go. Is Torture a porn, tr- ahoy. Yeah. Is that a tricycle wheel I hear squeaking down the hallway? <laughs> Hell yeah. No, it's Neville again. <laughs> His old bones squeaking. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so we, we we're going to actually do Saw, Yay. y'all. Lauren, we definitely had you in the books since like day one for this movie. And yep. Heather, you also really wanted to do this one as well. And we'll, we'll get into that when we discuss the movie. Hell yeah. So yeah, I guess let's just get right into recommendations. And there's four of us. So we want to get the ball rolling. This is our recommendation section, uh, in which we discuss other horror recommendations to each other. And you, our audience, hopefully hear some. We other horror movies, TV shows, books, video games, etc. Guests always go first. Lauren or Heather, do one of you want to lead us off with horror recommendations? I can go first. What I want to talk about is the 2022 movie Fall that was directed by Scott Mann. Damn it, Hunter. What are you getting us into? This was a very low-budget movie about two girls who climb an extremely tall, uh, it's a TV tower, in the desert. Yeah, this is Heather's dream, y'all. If you don't know (laughs) anything about my wife, it's that she loves heights. She loves being in, like, super isolated places where there's absolutely no one that can help you or cell phone service. Loves just climbing super dangerous, rusty fucking towers. So that's why she was drawn to this movie. That is a passion for her. Yeah. If you want a little bit of Heather and Aaron relationship history, we hadn't even been dating a year yet. And Aaron and I went to go visit some friends that lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we went to Carowinds. And Aaron was like, come ride this tall tower ride. It like goes up in the air and it spins and we'll get a beautiful view of the surrounding area. It'll be so romantic. Come ride this with me. It's literally one of those giant pneumatic elevators that has the UFO shaped capsule thing that you get inside of. It is fully enclosed. There is plexiglass all around it. There are seats. It 
very slowly moves up and spins. It's very delightful. They have music playing. Oh, I don't know. I think that might freak me out more if you're slowly going up higher and higher. Does it drop? It's, no, it, not no. at all. No, no. this is oh. just strictly a like, look at the beautiful landscape of all the mountains and the hills around us. That's all this is. It's, this is not a scare ride whatsoever. No, it's air conditioned. You're mm-hmm. not sitting like strapped to the outside. You're inside an enclosure that people can get up and walk There's around. a bunch of old Meemaws and like Peppaws with like baby children <laughs> in there because it's just something that they can do and like look and see the beautiful vista, right? Yeah. And I tried to tell Aaron, I was like, Aaron, I'm kind of afraid of heights. Like, I don't know. And he's like, no, no, come on. It'll be great. You'll love it. And I was just yeah, like, we're, ah. it's enclosed. It's not like riding a Ferris wheel where your feet are hanging off or anything. And there's just a fucking safety bar. Like, it's fine. Safety bar? We don't need no safety bar. What happens if we have to jump? We hadn't been together that long, you know, less than a year at this point. So I, I pressured her. Trying to like be cool and be like, yeah, I'm down. I'm not that scared. We get on this ride and I'm like gripping Aaron's shorts so hard <laughs> that they wrinkled for the rest of the day, like pressed a wrinkle into them. And I'm just crying like this is really <laughs> high up. I couldn't look at anything. Great date, Aaron. <laughs> I had to close my eyes the whole time. It was rough. I don't like heights. Meanwhile, there were like, again, young children mm-hmm. running because there's like seven feet of walking space on this thing. It's huge, right? And there's like children running around just oblivious <laughs> to the fact that they're over 100 feet in the air. No, I, I get it, though. I freak the fuck out still. I mean, I've gotten better about my fear of flying because we've just done it so much lately. But like, I still have to like hold the seats tight on takeoff and landing yeah. still makes me so nervous. Yeah. Kids are like laughing and having a great time like it's a roller coaster. <laughs> And I'm sitting there freaking the fuck out. So I get it. So I saw a preview for this movie and it certainly intrigued me because, you know, as horror fans, I think we can get a little inundated to monsters and gore to the point where it doesn't scare us as much as we might like. Yeah. It gets harder to get unsettled. But something I am really scared of is height. So I was like, oh, I bet this movie has the potential to really take me for a ride. And so I was just sort of in a mood where I kind of wanted to be scared and I wanted that adrenaline rush. So we rented Fall at home and we watched it. The height stuff in it is absolutely effective. I spent that movie on the edge of my seat. There were times where I had to look away. Many times where, you know, somebody would look over the edge or something would fall off the tower and I would literally be like, ah, ah, ah. (laughs) I would get so unsettled that I would scream. Fall off the tower, but it would always just be like, Oh, oops, I dropped the water bottle. Clang. (laughs) Just like keeps going, keeps going forever. It's just like, well, oops. So is it the one where I think I remember seeing a poster for it where it's two girls on the very top of it in the out open sky? Yeah. Okay. I remember. uh, What are they? Climbers or like adventure seekers? Yeah, they are. They're climbers. They have a history of climbing. This is not a spoiler. This is revealed within very early in the movie. The boyfriend of one of the girls died in a climbing accident. And so the friend is trying to get her grieving friend to like go and experience life again. As per the conversation that we were having literally before we started recording that every other fucking movie right now is about processing your trauma and your grief. This movie is exactly By reliving (laughs) the trauma to an even more intense degree. They're climbing something different. Yeah, Yeah, because initially it's just, oh, we're going to climb this tower. It's going to be fun, Instagram. And then, of course, they get up there. The fucking ladder literally breaks away and falls and there's nowhere for them to go, right? That is such a nightmare scenario. So, like, yeah, I get what you mean, Heather. Like, we're 
this is such a realistic just take the idea of the fear of heights and turn it into a survival yeah. horror yes. movie yes. and like right. no monster no enemy yes. no like antagonist it's literally just the fear itself yes. and i think if you're scared of heights it is going to be very effective for you like your stomach will drop but in a fun way i enjoyed watching the movie you know it's very low budget it made a ton of money compared to its budget, which I think mm-hmm. is great. Like, it's a different idea that hasn't really been done before. But if you're scared of heights, it's a really fun kind of roller coaster. Some absolutely bonkers things happen in this movie. I will say, for my part, I found it to be fairly formulaic to a point. But once it hits that point, they started doing shit in this movie where I was just like, no way. No fucking way. What is this? What the fuck is going on? And there is a moment in the movie that, like, if you asked me beforehand, tell me what is going to happen in this movie, I literally probably could have laid out the first 70 minutes of the plot, but there's something that happens toward the end that is so fucking bananas bonkers, I would not in my wildest dreams have at all guessed that was going to happen. And I think it is worth watching the movie just to get to that fucking insane bullshit that I guarantee I've never seen before. And for people who have seen the movie without spoiling it, we'll just say it's the second use of the shoe and the cell phone is mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and Ooh. if you've seen it, of course, you have not forgotten that moment. It will live rent free in your head forever. Yeah. Um, it's hilarious. Yeah. We- <laughs> Every couple of days, we'll just start fucking laughing to ourselves and be like, you remember when that shit happened in this fucking movie? It's great. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, it's been greenlight for a second movie. I don't know what a sequel to (laughs) Fall is going to look like. Yeah. How the fuck do you do that? Fall harder. Yeah. Not quite sure. (laughs) (laughs) Is it going to turn into like Fast and the Furious where they have to go to space eventually? (laughs) So I'm not going to lie. Half the time you've been talking, I was imagining the movie 47 meters down, which I saw in theaters. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the exact inverse so you're right that would actually make a good sequel but all that said i do recommend this movie especially if you're scared of heights it's not something that's super serious it's not a heavy watch but if you're just looking for kind of a light but thrilling horror movie to Mm -hmm. put on you know something that's gonna be exciting jazz you up a little bit doesn't overstay its welcome. I think fall is a good time i liked it Mm -hmm. i would second that and it's one of those fun ones where like might not be a horror movie to some people, but then is like the most horrific shit you can watch to others. <laughs> yeah. Like, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. It definitely gets into some horror shit by the end for sure. Just the idea of, you know, what happens when you start running out of water and there are buzzards flying around and you start hallucinating all kinds of awful shit. Yeah. I think free climbing in general is my idea of a horror story. But that's another topic for another day. <laughs> the amount of times, yeah, we've seen like commercials of people free climbing or whatever, and Heather just being like, this fucking idiot, this dumb piece of shit who hates his parents. <laughs> he just fucking has nothing to live for, clearly. This dumb fucking dipshit. She'll just it's scream at the, the TV for five hobby. minutes. It's hilarious. It's the worst hobby. So <laughs> anytime you played any of the new Tomb Raiders or Uncharted, is that like the same thing where it's just like, these fucking idiots, okay, no okay. climbing support. But you say that old little mr nathan drake uncharted he's an orphan we watched free solo that climbing movie about climbing the dawn wall at yosemite 
you see in that documentary, he has a really fucked up relationship with his parents. <laughs> I think my general presumption that people who free climb hate their parents is not unfounded. I think it's supported <laughs> and by And Fall the movie only reinforces that. I'm just saying. So I do have to ask, have you seen The Walk? No. We have not watched that yet. I've seen it, but we have not watched that together yet. That maybe that's about the guy who tightrope walked between the Twin Towers back in the 70s. So wait, follow-up question. Have you seen the trailer for The Walk? Because I think that would be enough for you. No, I haven't. <laughs> I did watch Man on Wire one time, which is like about the French tightrope walker. It's the same story. Oh, okay. The Walk is the Robert Zemeckis- The drama version? Dramatized yeah. movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? Mm-hmm. And the other one is the actual documentary, the doc, yeah. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the documentary's been around forever, too. It's Isn't it like an award-winning- I want to say it won the Oscar the yeah. year it came out. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, uh, is that all you got, Heather? That's all I got. Awesome. Lauren, what uh, what horror have you been getting into lately? So I only really have one thing to talk about. Uh, it's a game called Inscription, and Inscription is spelled with a Y. I was playing it on PC. Uh, you can download it through Steam, but I did just see in the big PlayStation sale that it has been transferred over to PlayStation. It is a fantastic game. Essentially, what happens is you wake up in a creepy cabin with a creepy guy who makes you play a deck building game. Gets really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Right? Would you like to play a game? Yeah. <laughs> it's got cards in it. But yeah, it's an insanely atmospheric game. It has just the coolest, creepiest design. It has a whole lore built in. I think it was actually made by the same developer who made the game Pony Island, if you guys are familiar with that one. Yeah, it's also the same developer who just did uh, Cult of Lamb, Devolver Digital. Oh. And Cult of Lamb, I know you and Nowacki, or Heather, you and Nowacki really like that game. Yes. But Inscription is another horror game they made. Oh, okay, cool. So, Lauren, I pulled it up on Steam while you are talking about it. It has over 30,000 reviews and is overwhelmingly positive with a score of 97. It is one of the best scored games, I think, on Steam, period. I mean, it is such a good game. It's really, really compelling. It's really cool in that it kind of like takes a turn about halfway through and becomes something else. But part of what they've done is because the sort of first deck building part that you do is so much fun, they actually added something called Casey's Mod, which makes sense if you kind of know the whole story. And it pretty much makes the game like Borderline Infinite, where you can play that sort of first half and make it into its own like separate game. I just played through all of it, got all the achievements, passed all the challenge levels. And it is so engrossing. It is just the most fun, interesting game. I highly recommend it for everyone. I want to say I saw it for $14.99 on the PlayStation sale, but I might have just pulled that number out of nowhere. But it is amazing. It's usually, I want to say, like 20 bucks full price, which from what I could tell, that's well worth, worth it. it. But I think right now, which granted by the time this episode comes out, who knows if it'll still be on sale or not. But on Steam, it's only 12 bucks. It's 40% off right now. Oh, nice. I think there's a Devolver digital sale going on at the moment. But another question I had for you, Lauren, because I'm like looking at some of the images from it, because there's also seems to be like incorporation of like jump scares and stuff with the person you're actually playing the cards against. 
And the cabin looks almost Evil Deadish. Actually, is there? I was about to say I need to Google image this game and see what it looks like. Because in my head, I'm just imagining that you're like playing Magic: The Gathering with the Unabomber in his cabin. <laughs> Oh, no, uh-uh. It's, it's a lot more surreal. It's very shadowy. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and it is. The guy you're playing against is clearly some kind of creature, but for most of it, you can only okay. see his eyes in the darkness. And then it almost turns like a little bit point and click, where there are times where you have to like get up and go around the room, and you'll have to like get really close to him at one point. It reminds me of the way you move in at Dead of Night, which I think I talked about on like my very first episode with you guys, where you move in these sort of fits and spurts. So it's rather than sort of like a linear motion, you're suddenly moving to like the end of the hallway with one click. And so you'll like move to the opposite okay. corner of the room, go to one corner, and then you move forward and you're suddenly like right up next to this guy. There aren't really jump scares that I can think of, but it does just have this atmosphere where like the whole time you're playing, I think until after the end, because at the end, it kind of changes the tone a little bit. But the whole time you're playing, it just feels really, really creepy. Like you're waiting for a jump scare, but nothing really happens. You're just like, I don't know about this whole thing. And I have to build a card deck and play cards now. So <laughs> what are on the cards? What is the game like itself? They focus largely There's on these cute little monsters and they have powers. I mean, they are animals <laughs> and one of the animals talks to you, which sounds pleasant, is super creepy until you kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah, because it's probably just the fox from fucking Antichrist going chaos reigns. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it's a stoat. So oh, mm. thank you. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Aaron. <laughs> no, it is. It's such a good game, and and it does just end up turning into you just get really into the strategy and the deck building aspect of it. Huh. I think I put more time into playing the Casey's mod part, which is the expanded, I mean, technically it's kind of like part three of the game, but it's the extended epilogue of the game. There's just so much. They built this out so well. All of the elements work together really well, and they've kind of clearly really figured out a good way of making it interesting while still kind of using a relatively like limited format. Yeah, I've probably played through it I mean, maybe like 50 times at this point, not the whole game, but played through the challenges. Nice. And even then, I'm not bored. Huh. There's still stuff to do and there's still like new ways to challenge it. And it's such a good game. It's more than worth the price. So absolutely get it. Yeah, I'm going to have to put this on top of my list now because the more I'm looking at it and the more you've told us about it, like I'm kind of in awe of what I'm seeing from it. It's so good. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. That's a great uh, recommendation. Aaron, what about you? What have you got? I'm going to jump back in time a little bit. And I guess, you know, as we've mentioned the last couple episodes, we are recording ahead just to have some stuff banked for when you take a break to be a new dad again, twice, second time. Again, part two. <laughs> Still be dad, yeah. be a new dad again. <laughs> so we were going to record this episode on Saw maybe like, what, two months ago? And just scheduling and like everything else. So the recommendation that I have is actually from something that Heather and I watched then that just happened to still be in my notes, and I haven't talked about it on the show since. And I feel like it's appropriate because it stars one Carrie Elwes, <laughs> who is the star of Saw. 
and this is borderline horror. This is very much real life horror. As far as like movies go, this is a, uh, let's just say tangential horror, but this is The Crush from 1993, directed by Alan Shapiro, starring Alicia Silverstone. Nick Elliott was looking for a nice, quiet place to write. He thought he found it with the Forrester family. Then he met Darian. How much they're paying you to watch me? Just running the guest house. From the moment she met Nick. You don't know how hard it is for me to make friends. It's like everybody thinks I'm some kind of freak or something. I'll be your friend. She was crazy about him. Darian's a very special girl. Nicholas, darling. Oh, hi, Darian. It's my friend Amy. Hi. It's my landlord's kid, Darian. She's got a crush on you. What are you saying? I did something to provoke this? Well, did you? At first, he was flattered. If you were 10 years older... You'd what? You have to be the adult. You can't blur the line. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I really like you, Darren. I really like you, too. No, I... I mean, as a friend. That's a big difference. Nick! <sighs> Nick! What are you doing? Making lemonade. Now. What's up? He's frightened. Miss me? Because if Darian can't have him. Darian, go play. No one can. I love you, Nick, and you love me. You play on Stop it! Stop it! She's crazy. She's the one you want to look up. was maybe her like first major breakout role aside from whatever fucking music video she was in i can't remember how have i never heard of this carrie ellis and wait alicia you've never heard of this this was not a movie that was on cable all the fucking time that you watched growing up i don't really i never heard of this i've never heard of this wasn't it an aerosmith video or am i just completely misremembering i think it was an aerosmith video sorry go on i think it was like janey's got a gun right because wasn't Liv Tyler in it, too? I believe so. They were like yeah. bad girls. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. And I should remember better, frankly, because both of them major parts of my uh, young manhood. Anyway, The Crush was a movie that I remember being on fucking USA all the time. And I just always thought it was kind of a lifetimey movie. And in a lot of ways, it is, it kind of is. the most lifetime movie. It is Carrie Elwes as kind of this smarmy dickbag Hollywood screenwriter who rents this garage apartment on this rich family's fucking mansion house. And Alicia Silverstone is their bad girl daughter. And so it becomes this whole thing of her trying to seduce him. And she is clearly doing drugs and drinking and partying and her parents are kind of oblivious to it and kind of also write it off as oh she's just a teenager whatever her dad is fucking kurtwood smith from robocop guns 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 jennifer rubin from nightmare on elm street three dream warriors is the adult co-worker of carrie elwes they kind of have a thing for each other i guess and alicia silverstone is just this honey trap 
Lolita, oh, you turned me down, I'm going to ruin your life now. But, of course, it veers again into, like, gross lifetime territory of everything is bad, everything is an abuse of power, everything is super not-at-all-above-board PC for 2023. Very much a, like, what the fuck is this movie? (laughs) Wow, things were different literally 30 years ago. Reading stuff like, oh, Alan Shapiro, the writer-director of this, Based this on his experiences, and I'm like doing air quote fingers really fucking Whoa. hard for right now. Just stuff like uh. that, that kind of gives you the heaves a little bit. In the movie, Alicia Silverstone's character clearly is playing Carrie Ellis. Yes. She's clearly trying to entrap him and get him caught. Basically, she is make purely him fucking make, with him because she's a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, trying to make him look like a child molester. That said. Cariel was never should have invited her to her, her his apartment ever. Ooh. He should have never been like, hi, teenage girl, let's yeah. hang out. The fact that he sort of initiates the entire interaction between them and kind of invites all of this to happen is line number one. Because she is supposed to be like, what, 14? Yeah, something in there. In the movie? Yeah. It's not like she's college age. Right. 19. No, she's. She's a child. 14. She is a child. But it just gets super trashy, campy in the best Lifetime movie kind of way. There is a scene where she has just gone so obsession crazy that she's literally got bags under her eyes and is pale like a fucking vampire, (laughs) just slamming pills and alcohol, stabbing herself in the hand, like that kind of nonsense. Does she ever do like the smear the lipstick all over? Is is that scene in there? That exact (laughs) thing is not in there, but there's similar shit in there. There is this whole weird fucking subplot about how much she wanted a pony growing up. Of course. Relatable. And her parents were like, you can't have a fucking pony. Instead, Kurtwood Smith's dad is like, I'm going to piece by piece build this fucking antique carousel and restore it so you can have all these horses in the attic of their house. So they go up in the attic and there is this huge, massive fucking old-timey carousel that is, like, fully operational because that becomes the, like, set piece where the final showdown happens. Heather, you, uh, you watch this with them, it sounds like? Yes. Yeah, it's fucking ludicrous. On one end, we were horrified by what is this? What is this trashy shit? On the other hand, we were dying laughing at some of the absurdities (laughs) in it. Definitely a fun piece of history. If you want to know more about this movie, to give a shout out to another good podcast. Yes, um, I was about to do that. The Odd Syrian podcast, which is um, Sam Weinman and Jordan Cruciola's podcast about early 2000s horror, did an episode on The Crush. Yes, did we say this movie comes out in 1993? Whatever. They'll get into it. It's fine. (laughs) But you should check out that podcast. Check out that episode if you want to know more about that movie. It is a wild trip. And also because I am a pedantic nerd who has to be right about everything, I looked it up. Apparently... Alicia Silverstone was in three Aerosmith videos for (laughs) crazy, crying, and amazing. 
So the like Aerosmith guy who cast her saw her in the crush and was like, that's it. That's our girl, which is like a whole nother layer of creepy. Knowing now the yeah. things we know about Steven Tyler. Yeah, there you go. How old was, was she when? She was a teenager. Ooh. So she was like pretty much. Oh, oh my yeah, God. She was a teenager. Wow. Absolutely. Man. And God bless Carrie Ellis. Everyone knows him as Wesley from The Princess Bride, Robin Hood and Robin Hood Men Tights. But then he does shit like this and the Saw franchise. I love that his career is just kind of all over the place. Well, it's wild, too, because I'll posit it here. I 100% do think people talk all the time about like, I don't want to be in a horror movie. I don't want to be typecast as a horror person. Mm -hmm. You know, your career will be ruined if you're in a horror movie. That is so rarely the case. I do want to maybe posit here that I think for Carrie Elwes and Danny Glover, this saw might have been a major roadblock in their careers because you look at what they've done since saw in the last 20 years. It's a lot of stuff you haven't heard of. Even though saw was successful. Yeah. Cause I think there was just something, again, we talk all the time about how horror is kind of ghettoized and seen as this lesser than kind of genre in the industry. Yeah. And I do think this is an example of when maybe they hit a career speed bump because looking at Carrie Elwes's career during the 90s, oh, he still cruises on and has a lot of stuff that he's in after The Crush. I think it was more just a fact of where the culture was in terms of teenage girls and uh, what is appropriate behavior from young men or from grown men and all that kind of thing. I don't think that movie set him back that hard. But yeah, we'll we'll get more into their filmographies in a bit. But yeah, The Crush was very interesting in a trashy, campy, fun way. And I would 100% recommend pairing it with Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. That would be a fucking excellent double feature if you just want nonsense trash from the 90s. One might say it would take you on a tour of different places of <laughs> 90s nonsense trash. Where are you from? Back east. From where back east? Different places. Different places. Different places. <laughs> just one of the best terrible line readings ever. It's one of my top ten favorites, if I'm being honest. I haven't seen it. I love Showgirls. I love that movie. Cool. Well, Derek, what have you got? Listeners, we talked a little bit off air about this. Um, I went on a little mini rant of, oh my gosh, so much newer stuff right now in media while it's all good and high quality is kind of trauma porn just dark and tragic you know i wrapped up watching gravity falls and that was like a nice child horror wholesomeness that i realized i was missing and i kind of wanted to keep that train rolling i had autumn over the weekend while my wife worked and i was looking for like more horror i could put on while she was even awake because we're, we're starting to let her kind of watch stuff with us and I decided on a whim to put on the 2015 horror comedy movie Goosebumps by Rob Letterman yeah. based off of the R.L. Stein books. And I had a lot of fun with it. The abominable snowman just crawled out of a book. That doesn't just happen. You just released every monster I've ever created. What was that? It's the invisible boy. What? Ow! Uh, he is such a cracker. I'm so alive. The only way to stop them is to suck them back into the books. Read them all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we know their weaknesses, yeah. we can capture them all. We're the only ones who can do this. <laughs> oh my god, how'd you do that? Sore feelings. I have a ton of cavities. When I was 10, I didn't brush my teeth for a whole year. Uh... Alright, 
right, everyone, plan anything you can to barricade the doors. We cannot let the monsters inside. I just want to break the rules. Gnomes? Maybe they're friendly. Oh. Not friendly. Definitely not friendly. Is it the best movie ever? No, this is a total like popcorn cinema movie, but it was fun and it was just kind of, again, wholesome. I mean, there was a subplot where his dad had passed away like the year prior, but they don't really stay on that note for too long at all. It's more just in the beginning. It's very formulaic. You mentioned formulaic earlier, Aaron. This movie is extremely formulaic, at least in the setup, because it's just son and single mom moved to small town nowhere from New York City after the dad died tragically, and they never tell you why. Mom is like, oh, my son's becoming a shut-in. He's withdrawn. But the son is really like nice with his mom and quirky, sure. and he's the best teenager, weirdly enough. I hope Autumn grows up to be like that nice and awesome with me. An idealized version of a teenager like who's 16 or 17. You know, and they move to the small town, and of course, he's trying to support his mom. His mom's been hired at the school he's going to as a new assistant principal. And again, just the setup was so laughable because... I miss my dad. And then like when their aunt comes over, the aunt and the mom are like, yeah, I just don't know what to do about him. But he's like totally fine. Otherwise, yeah, Yeah, his dad's been dead for a year. Let him grieve a little. But he seems well adjusted and he's coping well anyway. And then sure enough, their neighbors are kind of weird. And one of the neighbors is this awesome, cute girl who just happens to be the same age as him. And instantly they have a connection within five minutes of meeting each other. And her dad is trying to get her to stay away from him. And like her dad is a shut in. Her dad is played by Jack Black, by the way. She sneaks out with him and they like go have fun in like this abandoned amusement park, which was in great shape for being an abandoned amusement park in the middle of the woods, by the way, where apparently all the electricity still works. No problem. City never shut off the electricity to it. So context for that, Derek, you grew up in New Orleans. I grew up very near New Orleans. Guess what? At one point in time, listeners, There was a Six Flags in New Orleans. Jazzland, baby. Yep. This was just outside of New Orleans in this whole giant area that's a nature preserve. Like, cut a chunk of that off just on the outskirts and turned it into a theme park. That didn't last long. Well, it was Jazzland first, and then Six Flags bought them out because Jazzland was about to go bankrupt. Yeah, I couldn't remember like which direction that was. It was successful, but what killed it was Hurricane Katrina. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. And that's what I was about to say. I remember it's been empty and abandoned way fucking longer than it ever was an active park. And so it's always been one of those things I've heard people sneaking in oh people are urban explorer urban they've been the doing it that place since youtube was created they've been doing urban explorer videos of that place yeah so like as far as abandoned amusement parks go we definitely know a little bit about that and yeah that is not a place where you're just gonna go hang out casually yeah this girl and him climb up on the ferris wheel that's still working talk about fear of heights nope and they're like they climb up it all the way to the top and like share this tender moment together like at the very top they get caught by jack black's character the boy he thinks that there's abuse or something going on he hears screaming coming from their house he calls the cops on them 
He breaks into the house with his new friend, who his new friend is like the goofy sidekick, TM. I'm the nerd outcast kid at school, but we're instantly friends now. Man, he got on my fucking nerves. I didn't mind the teenage acting from the main character and the, and the love interest, but his goofy teenage sidekick really got on my nerves. Champ. Champ was his name Champ? in the movie. He's the McLovin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's the McLovin in this movie. But because it's a rated PG kids movie, he's even more insufferable. You know, they break into the house and they find these locked up books. And uh-oh, in the scuffle between like, the girl being there and Jack Black discovering them. They open up one of the books and the abominable snowman from like the R.L. Stein Goosebumps book comes alive and just goes on a rampage. You find out that Jack Black's character actually is R.L. Stein himself. So the, the movie then takes this meta turn that's actually pretty fun where it's a fictionalized version of R.L. Stein. I love that the movie never really explains why it, the only explanation you get from Jack Black's R.L. Stein is like, I was a lonely boy. I became a shut-in. I had my stories. I started writing these stories from my imagination, and I just have this power like that my stories come to life. Huh. That's the whole premise. So his original manuscripts are all locked up because like he doesn't want the monsters from the Goosebumps world to like come into our world and wreck shit. That's fun. Yeah. I really love the idea of more kid-friendly horror, and I wish there had been more when I was a kid. We did the Hocus Pocus episode quite some time ago now, but that was one of the few kid-friendly horror movies I could watch as a kid, which is why I watched it so much. And it was such a staple of my childhood because I really loved that vibe. But there was so little content that was age-appropriate for me when I was that age. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that idea of this Goosebumps movie. And Goosebumps is right at the same level as Hocus Pocus, right? Autumn doesn't really, like, know better. She, like, turned to me and went, whoa! (laughs) Like, you know, in fascination of what she was seeing a couple times. Otherwise, the jump scares didn't scare or anything like that. But I don't know if I would necessarily turn around and show her this when she's like three or four again. I maybe wait until she's like seven or eight, even though like my dad showed me more fucked up shit when I was five or six. <laughs> I'm just imagining you showing her Texas Chainsaw at 12 and just Franklin getting just fucking housed by Leatherface. And I laughing, laugh. And her just turning to you and also going, Wow. <laughs> I mean, I hope that's the dream, right? But yeah, I would say it's on the kind of on the same level, maybe even more child friendly than even Hocus Pocus. It's kind of in between Hocus Pocus and Halloween yeah. Town as far as like that childhood horror. And it was, it was kind of like there was a little bit of the nostalgia 90s there too. But Jack Black steals the show, of course. Yeah, of course. He's Jack Black. He's just insanely watchable. He's just fun. And he does a great job of being this fictionalized R.L. Stein. The movie could have went way overboard with the meta nature. And I think it does just enough. One of my favorite scenes is like the kids are trying to get him to admit that he's R.L. Stein. And the way they do it is by comparing him to Stephen King. He turns around. He's just like, let me tell you something about Steve. Did Steve sell f- over 500 million copies of horror novels? No, I don't <laughs> think so. That's how they got to get him to like drop the act of like him hiding his identity. But of course, the monsters escape because also one of the books that unlocked accidentally and they didn't realize was Slappy the Dummy from Night of the Living Dummies gets out and he's like the main antagonist. My guess was the dummy, but I couldn't remember his yeah. name was Slappy. I was about to say <laughs> Spanky. Yeah, <laughs> Slappy gets out and he's the main villain. He's, and the fun thing is Slappy is also voiced by Jack Black. Perfect. And yeah, he unleashes all the books, then burns the books so the monsters can't be trapped again. So the whole plot is centered around 
They never say we're going to kill you, but they basically are saying we're going to kill you so we can live in the real world forever. So like their whole thing is like they're trying to keep R.L. Stein away from danger while he writes the ultimate story where he can trap all the monsters into one book. Yeah. And it's just fun. It's a fun thing. And a lot of the classic monsters from the Goosebumps books themselves make it like the giant praying mantis, the werewolf from uh, Fever Swamp, again, Slappy, the abominable snowman, etc. There's a great werewolf scene in this movie, which I'll always give a movie credit when there's a werewolf uh, in the supermarket attacks them. That's great. All the scenes with the praying mantis are fun. So I recommend that for good kid horror, like baby's first horror movie. I think it's a lot of fun. And there's it's made well enough for younger generations now. And then there's a lot of nostalgia for us who grew up with Goosebumps books because I read the hell out of Goosebumps books, Goosebumps and then a chunk of Animorphs were like my scholastic fair go-tos. And it's kind of hilarious that my parents were totally fine with me reading Goosebumps. I guess they just were happy I was reading. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if I'd have a fascination with horror if it wasn't for Goosebumps. So that led me to the last part I wanted to bring up. I decided to put on the first episode. It's technically broken into two parts, but it's one giant episode. It's the pilot episode of the Goosebumps TV show that ran from like 1995. Oh, the one from the 90s? Hell yeah. Yeah, from like 95 to 98 or so. Canadian TV show. I think it was on Nickelodeon when it aired. Yeah. It was either Nick or Fox Kids. I can't remember which one. These first two episodes are based off of The Haunted Mask. That actually, this is all was more intense than I, I thought I remember it being. Because I remember this airing and I remember watching this when it aired. And I do remember it kind of scaring me as a kid rewatching it i don't know if it's the 90s aesthetic too because it has that color saturation where like during the day when they do day scenes but they're indoors it's still like abnormally dark in rooms you know what i'm talking about aaron like where it feels like 90s lifetime movie where sure, a lot of it's just that it's probably super set down yeah and it's like grainy enough to where it just feels like you're in another world almost where were you watching these so i watched both of these the movie and these episodes on Netflix. However, on Netflix for the TV show, for some reason, they only have the quote-unquote specials. So they only have the multi-part episodes, which is okay. why they have the Haunted Mask, because the Haunted Mask was part one and two, but they don't have the full seasons. Yeah. I think the show ran for like three or four seasons. Frankly, that's all I ever saw were the ones that they like released as a VHS movie that you could rent. Yeah. Like you said, it's just like a couple of the episodes all stuck together. Yeah. Okay, so like you watched it on Netflix it was in HD. So it's not like you were watching it on YouTube and it was like a VHS rip. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, okay. I was just, it was off Netflix. And this ran for about 40 minutes because it was two like 20 minute episodes back to back with each other. Like I said, actually scarier than I remember it being. I'd still say this is a good kinder trauma thing, like a good kids horror, but the 90s of it and it maybe being a different time, it had that Pete and Pete surrealism to it a little bit. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of the Pete and Pete episode where they go trick or treating. Because this whole episode happens during Halloween as well. And they all grow beards because they stay out too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that 90s kids TV version of trick-or-treating. Yeah. Where it was like hundreds of kids all around in every lawn and every house has thousands of pounds of candy and is super ready to give out to all these children. It was that kind of idealized Halloween and that is always forever ingrained in my mind. But it follows this girl. I think she's about 12 or 13. And she is easily scared like she's easily afraid of things and she gets bullied by these two boys who just constantly play pranks on her and scare her and she's even scared by her like little brother's costume and she gets frustrated with how much she gets scared that she decides to go to this 
costume pop-up store that is the weird costume store in town that no one really knew where it came from. It's run by like this Eastern European guy who has a weird scar on his face. At one point, she goes into the back of the store where the scarier masks are and kind of talking about stuff that in a modern lens is actually kind of, and I think this is unintentional, but the idea of, you know, now that sexual predators and happening to children is such a thing in our society now. At one scene, the store owner who is in his 40s or 50s confronts her in the back of the store and is like, why the fuck are you back here? And closes the door on her. And she keeps pushing that she wants to like take one of the masks. And he's trying to warn her not to take the mask because he says it in a way of, oh, but you have a pretty face and like puts his hand on her in a modern lens. This is kind of weird and creepy, like kind of I'm surprised they let this air on a kid's show. But again, I think it was all just unintentional. Like that wasn't what they're going for. They're trying to show that isn't this guy spooky? Isn't he trying to warn her that keep her away from the mask? And she winds up grabbing the mask, throwing the money at him, distracting him enough and runs out the store. She puts on this mask and she finds that her whole persona changes and it gets to the point where she can't take the mask off of her. The mask is starting to like stick to her skin. Her voice is changing. Turns her head into bugs. <laughs> that was the other thing. There was a bit of Halloween 3 in this. They did the Michael Myers POV from the first Halloween. I swear there was a scene they like did as a riff on Halloween 2 and Michael Myers takes the butcher knife from that woman who's cooking in her kitchen. I think they did that scene exactly almost with her doing it with her mom when she has a mask on. But yeah, the mask starts sticking to her. Her voice changes. The little girl that they got to play her does a great job of changing her personality completely. Apparently, she wore the prosthetics like she did all of it herself. And her voice changing was very impressive. Apparently, for this performance specifically, she was nominated for a Gemini Award, which is a now defunct award, but it was basically the Canadian version of the Emmys for her performance in a like child or youth program. And yeah, it was almost like the low budget nature and 90s-ness of it kind of contributed to its creepiness in a way I wasn't expecting. It was a lot more watchable than I remember it being, and I kind of want to go and start watching through more of these Goosebump series. If this kind of keeps up, which I think it will, because this, this series was praised and has been praised from what I've been reading, I could see us maybe doing this as Patreon down the road. Yeah. We are always looking for kid horror. But yeah, hopefully it's still on Netflix by the time this episode drops. But The Haunted Mask, it's episode one and two, the very first two episodes piled into one watchable chunk. I was just in goosebumps fever, I guess. Yeah, that's it for me. Hell yeah. Aaron, you're not remembering the name of the puppet and wanting them to call him Spanky instead of Slappy. When you can't remember a name, you always remember the correct genre of the name, but not the actual name itself. (laughs) So if there are any other succession watchers uh, amongst the viewership, I'm sure there are a few. Before we started season four, Aaron could not remember Shiv's name. And he was like, her name is Siobhan. So he's like, but they all call her Shiv, like stab, stab. Right. What's that girl? Cutty, stabby, (laughs) knifey. I was like, oh, my God, it's Shiv. I was like, who the hell are you? talking about cutting fuck off (laughs) there's my succession cool the horror of american capitalism yeah the real horror for real one last thing real quick before we start saw aaron you forwarded me this message from patreon so this is uh one of our listeners who i guess is a patron so thank you for that too but thank you for the message uh seamus mclaughlin all the way from ireland he thanked us for including the shout out to Carmilla, the vampire story that was written by an Irish author. We had talked briefly about that when I brought up 
uh, let's scare Jessica to death as a recommendation on our Evil Dead episode. So thank you for messaging us all the way from over across the pond. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. I hope we continue to entertain you. Time wise, I got that episode edited this afternoon. You uploaded it. And my guy is already like throwing us some reviews and being like, oh, yeah, already listened to this episode. So yeah, thank you, Seamus. So to yeah. transition from our brief succession diversion to Saw, another movie about digging messages out of a toilet. Happy <laughs> to Dear Departed Lord Roy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, mm, good, good pull. Good connection, baby. I guess with that, let's get into 2004's directorial debut, which I didn't realize. Yep. By James Wan. Oh wow! The horror film Saw. Here's a here's a cut of Saw. Hello, madam. Doctor Gordon. I want to play a game. The jigsaw killer. Paul, find the path with the razor wire. Technically speaking, he's not really a murderer. He never killed anyone. Doctor Gordon, your aim in this game is to kill Adam. If you do not, then Diana will die finds ways for his victims to kill themselves. I'm sick of people who don't appreciate their blessings. I've given you a life purpose. Looks like our friend Jigsaw likes to book himself hard row seats to his own sick games. He doesn't want us to cut through our chains. He wants us to cut through our feet. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive. Not anymore. You are a drug addict. Do you think that is why he picked you? He helped me. Don't believe Adam's lies. So yeah, right up top, uh, let's just start with Lauren. Like we said, day one, you wanted to be on for Saw. Mm -hmm. You are our Ots horror fan defender. Mm -hmm. What is it about Saw? Is this one of your favorite horror movies ever? Yeah. Uh, what is it about what this movie? What is your movie? connection with this? When did you first watch it? Yeah. Right. Why do you like it so much, et cetera, et cetera? So I think my devotion to Saw is actually more the franchise than this movie specifically. Okay. I don't know if this one would even be in my top three, but that is one to actually sit down and figure out at a later date. That's bold. I stand by it. Because uh, let's just say right here, Heather and I have both independently seen these movies before we were even together. And since we've been together, we have tried multiple times to get through this franchise. And, uh, the farthest we've gotten has been through like the fifth movie. So the okay. fact that this one is not even in your top three, I'm intrigued now, like where this is going to go. Yeah, I think I stand by that. It's definitely top five, but I don't know top three. But to take it way, way back to how I was introduced to the franchise through this movie, I remember I was a freshman in high school and I had no tolerance for or knowledge of scary movies okay i think i saw signs when i was 13 and that was as scary as it got and i had a friend who to this day i'm not really 100 sure why she was friends with me because <laughs> she was insanely cool 
she was total cool girl. Like she listened to Sufjan Stevens when I had no idea who that was. I listened to Fallout Boy and that was about as cool as it got. But she was a sophomore. I remember one day we were kind of part of a mutual friend group and she started telling me about these Saw movies. And she tells me the premise and she tells me like, oh, it's this guy that he doesn't actually kill you. He makes you kill yourself. And he has all these traps, like a reverse bear trap. And of course, me is like a reverse bear trap. That's crazy. This sounds so cool. So I invite her over for a sleepover. And I knew we were going to watch this movie and possibly the sequels. But I was still kind of ready for like a sleepover. So I got pizza and I got chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. And I was like, we're going to talk about boys. This is going to be great. So she shows up at like 530 with Saw 1, 2, and 3. And we proceeded to watch them back to back to (laughs) back. So two things. I think we finished at like 9 o'clock, right? Because they're pretty quick movies. And I was just like, I think I'm ready to go to bed. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) uh i'm done you had enough animal guts and shitty toilets and razor wire and you you had your fill especially three yeah yes and and i think the best part about this entire experience i barely remember watching the movies in that first visit i remember this not at all i do remember we sit down to watch the movie there's that great opening where the lights turn on and there's the camera zoom shot down to you know the corpse laying on the floor and huge spoiler for the movie saw this girl looks at me and she goes guess what that guy is not dead oh fuck you (laughs) in retrospect it was such a it's like if you started star wars and we're like oh yeah that guy he's the main character's father why would you do that to me uh that sucks (laughs) so That's what I remember. And then just as it went on through high school, it ended up being a pretty big part of my friend groups, kind of just pop culture references. I remember going with one friend in particular to see them every year because they came out every year. Uh We had a hobby of writing jigsaw tapes for each other just in our (laughs) spare time. Off air, you in preparation for this uh, episode, you sent us those comedy videos of what if Jigsaw was your roommate or like living what with if Jigsaw, Jigsaw <laughs> Gary, yeah, like working with Jigsaw. Gary, Gary, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a game. Okay, well, I want to take a shower, so the toilet has been clogged with two ply paper towels and dirty socks. If you do not fix it in the next 27 seconds, it will overflow, covering your personal electronic devices in filthy toilet water. To reach them, you must walk barefoot across a floor covered in razor blades. Yeah, and like, you're right, though, because you're not too much younger than our grade, mm-hmm. I guess, for better, like a better terms, uh, Lauren than, than Aaron and I. Because same thing in our friend group, we always did the, do you want to play a game? Oh, yeah. That whole thing has carried over in pop culture, even to now, yeah. like, mm-hmm. people are still, like, spoofing that. Well, the franchise also just went on for years, so yes. it started when we were in high school. Yeah, we kind of grew up with it. I was maybe, like, a sophomore, I think, and it just went on for years. So, yeah, totally. By the time mm-hmm. we're a few movies in, it's now Lauren's turn to jump in. And you can kind of start from that point and still be catching new movies at the theater every year. So, yeah, it was a fun time for that couple of years. Mm -hmm. From what I've seen, this whole franchise is aging quite well because 
more and more people are going up to bat for some of the sequels that I wasn't expecting from what I've seen. Yeah, Lauren, stand on the courage of your convictions. We love your hot takes. Defend them <laughs> full throated. Yeah. That's what I want to hear. Go for it. This is your time to shine. Well, and actually one thing I will say, part of why I don't like this one compared to the others is that I feel like this one has aged poorly. Wow, okay. Not like really poorly, but not as well as some of the later ones. Because I do think one thing with the Saw movies is they end up in a couple of the installments being very with the times, looking at who the targets are for Jigsaw's games of who is harming other people. And it will be like health insurance executives and bankers that scam people out of money. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's who it is. So that's what I was about to say was, I think I'm shocked that you're like, oh, yeah, this first one doesn't hold up as well as some of the sequels. It's aged a little bit poorly. Because in my mind, this is still always just going to be like the best of the bunch in terms of it just being the most straightforward, clean cut nugget self-contained and you don't have to like have seen all this other stuff to know what's really going on but i will agree with you that this movie is pretty basic in terms of its themes Mm -hmm. i think the one that i enjoyed the most from a story standpoint is what you just mentioned i can't remember if it was what five four or five it's whichever one the entire thing just ends up being like oh we fucking got all the people from this shitty health insurance company and six okay okay well then we got that far at least i guess we did we got past five because that one i genuinely kind of enjoyed the like fuck you mean spiritedness of let's actually look at the hellscape that is the american healthcare system which the first movie is really just scratching the surface of that topic Mm -hmm. well and i was gonna say in the first movie jigsaw almost seems hypocritical or a little too mean spirited because the people he's going after are like people who one was a person who tried to commit suicide and like obviously has mental health problems. Jigsaw's like, no, fuck you. You don't appreciate life. So I'm going to put you in this fucking barbed wire cage and you have to try crawl out of naked without killing yourself. That was a huge thing that rubbed me the wrong way. And actually, I wrote down his quote where he says he's sick of those who don't appreciate their blessings, sick of those who scoff at the suffering of others. But when he's in the tape with the person who attempted suicide, he's like, Oh, you're a perfectly fine middle-aged man who has money and mental health, and you, you know, attempted suicide. What's wrong with you? When That aged really poorly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even the drug addiction aspect of it. Yeah. I remember when I was watching this, in my head, I remember like, oh, all these people wind up, you find out by the end, all of them kind of deserve this. But then re-watching it now, and I've rewatched it twice because I rewatched it like when the first time we thought we were going to record, and I rewatched it again pretty recently for this one. And like, not all of them deserved it. And there's an argument there that none of them, at least in this first film, deserve it. Well, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm that's not why Jigsaw is the villain. I'm not a Jigsaw sympathizer. No. I think the most eg- egregious one where you're like, you're a little high in your own bullshit is the one where the key is in the other person and the girl has to like get the key out of her cellmate's body and she's told mm-hmm. he's dead, but he's actually alive. I'm like, wait, you're, yeah. you're going to make this girl into a murderer to prove that she wants to live? Like, that's not okay. And you find out, I think, by the end of this movie and like, no, you find out, I'm getting ahead of myself now. You find out this, I think, at least in yeah. two, he does this shit to try and almost get people to take over the mantle eventually. But yeah, I, I'm ahead of myself there. But since you're our other guest, before we really dig in more into this movie, 
I wanted to ask you, because like we said, uh, Lauren was always penciled in as a guest for this movie. But Heather, you really wanted to come on for yeah. this one specifically as well. Why is that? What about this movie clicks for you? Like, what's significant about being a guest on this episode? Sure. And same thing, like, what's your background with this? Sure. I don't remember when I saw the first movie. It must have been in high school, I'm sure. Just running it and watching it with friends, I have to guess, is when I saw it for the first time. And then when I was a freshman in college, I think we've talked about before how our, our college was right across the street from a video rental place back when that was a thing. Uh-huh. Hollywood video, baby. Yes. <laughs> yep. So when they would have good sales, you know, a bunch of rentals for cheap, it was very common for people to run over and get a bunch of videos and watch them in the dorm. So I remember I rented a good chunk of the series when it was five rentals for $5 or whatever and watched it in the dorm. The reason I wanted to come on is because I know there are a lot of things that are dated about the series. Torture porn has a very like sordid reputation and it's definitely even amongst a genre that is already kind of scorned and looked down on. I feel like torture porn is even the black sheep of an already black sheep genre. You know, a lot of people, even horror fans are like, oh, I don't like torture porn. But the nugget of the traps and that whole concept, I just find so intriguing. And I think that's when this movie is really good. The trap sequences, the beginning and end of this movie are really good and really interesting. What sags for me is the procedural parts where it's the procedural yeah. crime solving drama. Mm. But I still just love the concept and it really gets in my head. Trying to imagine yourself in that circumstance. Like, what would you yeah. do if you were in a trap? Could you survive this? Could you not? I love the puzzle aspect of it. I really think that's it. I think my brain just likes to kind of turn that concept over. And I really do like this first movie a lot. I like the concept. I am not a torture porn hater. There is a reason that some people enjoy that outlet. And that can be a good release sometimes, I think, to watch movies that are really dark like this. I like that we have a broad spectrum of horror where you can watch movies that aren't so gory or horrific. And then sometimes you can watch something really mean like yeah. Saw or Evil Dead, you know. To jump back as well to your recommendation of Fall, same idea. So much of what makes that movie effective, which again, pretty formulaic movie, but formula's tough because formula, you have to like get it right. You know, formula for formula's sake is not an easy thing to do. So much of what makes both Fall and the Saw movies work is, like you said, you put yourself in that same position and you instantly start empathizing with that character more than you normally would. You're trying to, like, turn it around in your head of, like, what would I do? Would I make the same decision? Like, that, yeah. that's what's so much of what keeps you pulled into the movie. Well, it lends itself to like giving yourself viewer anxiety mm -hmm. even yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. I would make the same decision here or I wouldn't make the same decision here. I mean, even just the reverse bear trap, because in this movie, we actually don't see it happen because she gets it off in time. But like the reverse bear trap, along with the jigsaw doll are like the two most iconic things that people always go back to in this franchise, especially when this first movie dropped. Because the idea of a reverse bear trap that literally opens your yeah. entire like skull and head from the inside out is horrifying. Just that idea of like at any moment this thing could snap and I get turned inside out. That one's kind of freaky to think about. The one that has always gotten me the most is the needles with the junkie Ooh. who has to like get in the pit of needles. Yeah, yeah that's, two. that's two. Yeah, um, Woof. that one gets me big time. Yep. Although as yeah. I've gotten older. 
The barbed wire guy, I feel like I could do the pain. I might even can do the needles. What's going to get me if I'm ever in a saw trap, if I have to reach into a disgusting toilet for any reason whatsoever, like I might as well just lay down on the floor and die. Yeah. <laughs> it's not happening. Just trap you in another dirty room hotel. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> no, it's over. I'm sorry. I miss you, Aaron. No, what's interesting about it too is there is that aspect of what would I do if I was in that situation? But maybe this is just evidence of how weird my friend group was in high school. We would go like, what would be the thing that would get you put in that room? Oh, wow. Like, what is the thing? <laughs> what is your sin? Yeah, not in a way of, it wasn't so much like, oh, yeah, would you murder someone or, or what have you? But it was more like, you're really tall. You need to stop being so tall. And it would be a whole. <laughs> For too long, you have towered above others. And... It almost reminds me, I just had a weird connection. The game show Baggage. Yes. Which I know several fans. <laughs> yes. Where you watch that show and you think, oh, what would my baggage be? Same thing. <laughs> what yeah. would my crime yep. be that would get me put in a jigsaw trap? <laughs> so something I was thinking about, kind of go off all of y'all's points so far. I saw saw uh, I saw it in theaters because it was a big deal almost immediately when it dropped. I saw it a couple times blockbuster rental. I saw the second one for some reason at the time I did like the second one and then I just fell off the franchise and I kind of dismissed it of oh they're just kind of cash cow like money grabbing. I guess all the rest of these sequels are bad and you know I would even argue this franchise kind of wrongfully so in retrospect has been shit on since the first movie. Most people agree that okay the first movie was a novelty. And it's time. But then over the rest of the aughts and while we were in college, it seemed like a lot of people kind of shit on this franchise. The more like as I get older and rewatching this first movie, I'm kind of now interested to go back and try the second one because I haven't watched it since I was a teenager. And I kind of want to check out the rest of the franchise. Wink, wink, listeners. This might be an episode on our Patreon uh, bonus feature. Yeah. $5 a month to access all that great content. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think it's starting to finally come back around. No, there's actually some good stuff in in these movies. And here's what happened with me uh, that I noticed. Uh, So I've seen the first Saw now like maybe a dozen times. This last watch I actually did for this recording, not, not the one we did two months ago was the best watch of this movie for me. And that includes the first time I saw this movie when like all of this was still fresh. The idea of an arcade style kill room, arcade for Marvel Comics, like style like <laughs> I knew. kill X-Men trap. Villain, yeah. Yeah, X-Men villain. That idea of this killer who who's trying to teach you a life lesson, blah, blah, blah. But here's why this was probably my best watch. I'm not meaning this totally in a joking manner. I think it's endearing in the same way that some new metal is. Because we all want to pretend hate on like hybrid theory by Linkin Park, right? not hate on hybrid theory by lincoln park actually exactly <laughs> exactly that's my point right there like percent told heather today as i was sitting here working on my notes just fucking blasting hybrid theory into my headphones yeah i am getting my brain new metal to fucking back right now cut my life into pieces this is my last resort suffocation no 
to like prep for this episode. I gotta get in the headspace of Mudvayne. And fucking System of a Down. You wanted to! Grab a brush and put a little makeup! You wanted to! I just got the baby with the shake-up! You wanted to! And Limp Bizkit and all that shit. Break your fucking face tonight! Just put it in my veins. Right. Kind of in the same way that Saw and the rest of the franchise for a while was kind of just looked down on as an art form. Like, oh, this isn't high art. New metal is a terrible music genre. Like, people who actually like music know this is trash. But, like, you're kind of disregarding that whole idea of you still know all the words to hybrid theory. Yeah. If you put on that album, you are going to bop along to that. And they're disregarding the fact that it was so successful. And I think Saw is the same yeah. way. It's aged a little bit, sure. It's a little bit rough around the edges in that early 2000s way. Well, but it's-, it's very rough around the edges in that this is James Wan's first movie. Yeah, but my point was that people are disregarding how successful this was. And people are disregarding how much Saw the movie, 2004 Saw, shifted the horror genre this is one of those horror movie like shifts that we put up there with scream and uh nightmare on elm street and so on and so down as you keep going down the uh, decades this was the torture porn movie Mm -hmm. yeah this was the ultimate one for better and for worse without this we wouldn't have gotten as much of like the grimy like clean but grimy torture porn movies that the odds had but saw was the absolute best of the brunch and we've talked about this too there was something in the zeitgeist post 9-11 and Lauren, you grew up with this more than even Aaron and I, because we were teenagers by this point. You might have been exposed to this even before you were a teenager. Post 9-11, there was something in the zeitgeist where like these horror movies took this torture porn, mean-spirited turn, but making it accessible to a large cinema audience. Because like Saw was a giant popcorn movie. You have a guy literally sawing his, his foot off to like escape on the big screen and it made millions and millions of money. Right. I mean, we were seeing as a culture that we were doing torture. That was in the news. It was a huge policy debate. It was everywhere. I think Saw comes out of Americans wanting to explore the idea of, okay, what is torture? What are we doing? What does that mean to do it? How does it feel? I think Saw is a part of that. It's a part of that exploration of trying to grapple with that idea. Obviously, you know, it's not part of political dialogue or how we solve this problem, how we got here. But I think it's just exploring the theme that was in the news and that we were all living with and adjusting to at the time. Just to build off, I think this might be very dark for a second. So edit this out if it is too much of a tone shift. I read a paper in an anthology that was actually like horror films since 9-11. And one of the papers, I don't remember if it was a psychologist or uh, like a media critic who wrote it, but one of the papers was actually talking about Saw specifically and the news coverage of 9-11. And one thing with 9-11 is after some of the initial images of people leaping or falling from the building, you didn't really see images of people. A bomb goes off in Syria and the news shows us people covered in dirt, people bleeding, people lying motionless, people who have been harmed. With 9-11, that didn't happen. 
any images that showed people were scrubbed very quickly. And so this paper was arguing that there is actually some psychological response in this horror where you are now seeing people who are bent, twisted, broken, bleeding through mechanical means, through rusted metal, through iron, through concrete, through wire. And they argued that it was actually a response to that. Yeah, because it's bringing it home. It's bringing it home. It's putting it to an audience that Awfully enough, there are a lot of people in America who don't relate to seeing pictures of a bombing in Syria or don't relate to, you know, things going on in Iraq, but will relate to the characters in Saw. You know, Mm -hmm. it brings it into view in a different way. To take that idea of bodies being mangled, like you said, mechanical way in environments where like rust is everywhere and shards of glass are everywhere and everything else, because that is Saw in a nutshell. And kind of to wrap up like my final thought, like going back to like how important again, for better for or for worse, like this movie really was to 2004, like same thing with hybrid theory with Linkin Park. It shifted music. You know, people want to pretend like it didn't, but it did. And it sold millions and millions of copies, just like this movie, sold millions and millions of tickets. And there's always been mean spiritedness in horror, but there was something about like aughts where it made it even more mainstream because I swear there were so many like inspirations and knockoffs from movies like Saw just constantly being pumped out in the theaters to a point where it was almost like what we're seeing now with MCU fatigue, but for this subgenre of horror, but they were all like, for the most part, successful and still generating money anyway. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why like the franchise ultimately is like looked down upon or was looked down upon because they were churning them out so much. But to say this movie isn't good or isn't important to horror is a, is a lie. And I think we can all agree that saw even this first one, especially this first one, is very 2004. It is of a moment. The <laughs> yeah. music is very 2004. <laughs> the camera work and the coloring. The flip phone. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I texted you guys about that line. Flip phones, the greatest invention ever yeah. known to man. Little did he know. The second one is cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Cigarettes, yeah. yeah. Little did he know it would lead to smartphones and the downfall of democracy as we know it. <laughs> it's super dated, but I think there are things that have made it out of that era that are still respectable. And there are things that we can look back from 2004. God bless these youths, but the youngins that want to bring back the low rise jeans with their thongs hanging out, God bless them and their beautiful young hearts and souls that are just so ready to take that on. Everything old is new again. I will die with (laughs) high-waisted pants on. So some things like low rise jeans should stay in 2004. But other things like Linkin Park and like Saw, I think have stood the test of time as sort of the good version of the culture that we had back then. You know, there are some things we don't want to bring into the future, but I think hybrid theory and and Saw we can carry forward. Well, and we could still poke fun at them, but to say that it's all trash and not not important important to culture, yeah, is, is a lie in my opinion. So I guess to back up real quick, you know, my history with this movie also saw this one in theaters when it came out. I was in high school. Liked it. I enjoyed the novelty of it. I remember then renting the second and the third movie. Well, I remember renting this first movie again, watching it with my mom and my brothers, then immediately being like, okay, two and three are out. Let's watch two and three. I think this was maybe summer either right after I graduated or the summer that I had to move home after freshman year and dorms were closed. I can't remember. It had to have been then. But 
I remember watching those first three, and then I just kind of stopped, and I didn't check out any of the other ones. I always remember like the novelty of the first movie, and I don't think I actually revisited it until Heather and I were together when we first tried to watch through all of them years ago. And two and three, I will say, like blended together really hard in my brain because they were the same director. They were basically shot back to back. They're like a part A, part B kind of story. So like those two blended together in my head pretty well, whereas this first movie stood alone really hard. So like I don't necessarily have as much of a history with this per se. Other than just, I enjoyed the film experiment that this movie was. And I've said it on the show before, but this was definitely when young cineast Aaron was swinging really fucking hard into watching everything that's, you know, hashtag this is cinema. I'm Werner Herzog, and this is... <laughs> Papa Scorsese, this is cinema. I was definitely <laughs> watching a lot of independent stuff, a lot of foreign stuff, a lot of classic stuff. And it wasn't that I was thumbing my nose at stuff like Saw per se, as much as I was just way more involved with older stuff. Not old, I wasn't watching just nothing but fucking pre-code movies or anything, but just older like pre-2000s pretty much. You know, so that whole time of high school and college. <laughs> you had moved on to Neutral Milk Hotel. You had moved on from Lincoln Park. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I was definitely trying to, like, get all the deeper things that, okay, now I'm learning about, like, seriously, I want to go to film school. This is the stuff I need to know. Which, you know, little that I know, you go to film school and it turns out nobody else there has actually seen anything of importance. Because you have those discussions around, like, what's something that everybody watched? And everybody's like, oh, The Dark Knight is, like, the best movie ever. Fight Club. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so I did not really have that much of a history with this one, although I enjoyed this first one for what it was. Now, to also, again, take a slight backward step, what I find curious is this movie, and this is, like, the first note of discussion that I have, and we've kind of already gotten there. This is one of the main titles that comes to mind when the topic of torture porn is discussed, along with stuff like Hostile, Martyrs, just a lot of stuff of that spread, right? There was a lot of Asian horror coming out around this time that was very similar, coming off the heels of Audition in 99, right? Well, yeah, it was a lot. Of, I remember in American cinema specifically, is a lot of what can we remake from Asian horror and then what torture porn can we Well, watch? as far as like general like horror, yes. Yeah, and even a smattering of remaking classics like the Texas Chainsaw remake, I what was 2003, I think. It was, and so that's another instance of early this vibe before we really had the term torture porn. I would definitely say right. Texas Chainsaw is like an early play with that, right? But what I find interesting about Saw, at least this first movie, because I 100% agree with what all of y'all said about how the series is as a whole really a like deep reflection of where America was over the course of years that this series was coming out. And the movies very much become about a lot of that. What's interesting about this first one is it's written by two Australian guys, <laughs> and they wrote it before 9-11. Whoa. So ostensibly, there's nothing specifically about 9-11 Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, in this first movie. This was a pure case of 
babies first, we have to make a horror movie, we can do it cheap, we can do it fast, we have a novel idea, we want to break into the film industry as film school graduates. And so this movie, at least, doesn't really have anything directly to do with it. Yet, the entire franchise as a whole absolutely morphs into this larger reflection of American culture and society, especially as American directors and then later American writers come in. Lee Whannell wrote this first and then the second and third movie, and then it's different writers from there, and then it's different directors to the whole thing. James Wan doesn't come back for any of them. Mm-hmm. Was he involved in like three or four, but not in directing? But like he only came back for, for one of the sequels? I think he has always gotten a very passing executive producer credit just because this is a franchise that he helped create, but I don't think he's ever been directly involved with any of them beyond the first one. Well, and we regard James Wan very highly as as a modern horror master, but again, I I was taken by surprise. I did not realize this was his directorial debut. Uh And to have your directorial debut be Saw, which granted, it's interesting that on one hand, like we mentioned earlier, Carrie Elias, where did he go career-wise after this movie? Where that happened to him, but then you had James Wan who went on to continue oh, this catapulted doing these them. big yeah. horror movies like Insidious, Conjuring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, yeah. I find it interesting to go back, though, and think about this movie is one of the main titles that comes up in every torture porn discussion, and yet it was written by Australians before 9-11. So there's not really any direct line for that. I think a lot of it was just, this is such, in every way, shape, or form, from like the meeting of those two guys and them becoming partners and making this movie to this movie getting made to this movie coming out. Everything about this movie is exactly right place, right time, perfect luck. And I think this just hit at exactly the right time because although the movie itself was written before 9-11 and written by non-Americans, it came out in 2004. And by that point, I am very certain we already knew about the fucked up stuff that was happening at Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And so I don't think that the movie was made with any intention or purpose of analyzing post 9-11 stress and the war and torture. But boy, oh fucking boy, did it exactly hit at the time where that was what was on everybody's minds. Well, maybe that's also to like where his victims start becoming more and more deserving. Whereas in this first movie, there's an argument there that he's a giant hypocrite and a lot of the victims, if not all of them, don't deserve this fate. So you're exactly kind of picking up where I was taking this or you're signaling. So I actually kind of have a theory about this. See, I don't think that Dr. Gordon, Adam, Zepp, or Allie and Diana, the mother and daughter, make any sense as Jigsaw victims. That really stuck out to me with this watch, where you do have this idea of, you know, his targets are people that don't appreciate their life, but they're usually people who don't appreciate their life in ways that actively harm others. Yeah. So in this one, the person who attempts suicide and Amanda, the drug addict, they don't really make sense. What I was kind of thinking is, okay, so in this universe, Jigsaw has been Jigsaw for a fair amount of time, enough that the police have a Jigsaw expert, enough that he has a nickname, that he's well known. They have their entire corner of the police station that's the giant red yarn wall. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What I was actually thinking 
is that with the whole Dr. Gordon situation, it's largely just people that John Kramer views as people who have killed him. And it made me make this really weird connection with some serial killers who will commit all of these murders that are sort of leading to the one that they really wanted to commit, the one that's the big emotional one. I think the example is Edmund Kemper, who killed several women and then brutally killed his mother. And that was kind of the big one. It's all escalation. Yeah. Yes. And what I was kind of thinking was, was all of this John Kramer, not in the jigsaw sense that we think of him in the later movies as this genius, weird kind of vigilante guy, but rather he's just a serial killer who was getting to the big kill, which was his doctor who you know, didn't even know his name, talked about him like he wasn't in the room, told him he had cancer and would pass away. That's what this felt like to me was this was his big serial killer crescendo. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I think it's hard to justify this first movie. Like you were saying, it's hard to say, oh, he has a point here. There's so many victims that don't make sense. And there's so many of his traps that are like fun to watch, but don't hold up to his logic that you're like, Jigsaw, you're just... You're not selling me on this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, you're just killing people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad he hasn't become this misinterpreted character like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho or Tyler Durden from Fight Club. He's no Joaquin Phoenix Joker. We live in a society, bro. We, we live in a society. <laughs> I'm glad that the Chuds haven't adopted Jigsaw among them because he is, especially in this first movie, just a fucking horrible serial killer. <laughs> yeah. So to back up, all of y'all's points. Like I said, movie was not written in any 9-11 context. The movie was written by Australians. Their main influence for this fucking movie was Hitchcock and was Italian giallo movies, specifically Argento. The fucking Billy, is it Billy? Is the doll named Billy? The doll's named Billy, right? Am I just making that yes. up? Okay, yeah. The fucking Billy, Billy on the tricycle. He's an icon. We yeah. love him. Yes. <laughs> Billy on the tricycle. and. The constant use of just seeing the gloved leather hands manipulating the keyboard and turning switches on and shit. All Giallo tropes. Derek, you've seen enough Giallo stuff now, and you literally just watched Deep Red. The fucking Billy Doll is a thousand percent a riff on that. So, like, they went into this movie intentionally to make it this, like, twisty murder mystery. And Derek, again, you've seen enough Giallo at this point that... Those movies rarely ever make sense. The logic rarely (laughs) ever makes sense. The killer's logic rarely ever makes sense. And so much of it is just built around death set pieces. It's all about what is the fucking crazy way that we can kill this person. Every Argento movie is that. You literally have a girl in Suspiria trying to get away from the killer and she's running through the attic and all these empty rooms. She jumps through a transit window into another room and just falls into a fucking pile of barbed wire, right? What they're doing in this movie is not necessarily new in that sense, but there was enough of a massive viewership gap from the abominable Dr. Fibes, which is a Vincent Price movie that's all the same idea. Like, I'm going to get revenge on these people who killed my wife. And it's just him creating elaborate death traps. Yeah. Well, even the uh, Zepp's costume that he does to like abduct people, which are the 
more traditional jump scares in this movie, I would say. But Pighead is scary, yeah. Well, even the Pighead idea, that felt kind of Italian horror giallo. Like, what if there was a slasher killer giallo who was wearing this yeah. Pighead and, like, snorting around? But that also, like, now that you say yeah. that... It's a little bit stage fright, except it's not an owl head. It's also a little bit motel hell, except it's not a farmer man. But it's effective. It's super effective. Mm-hmm. But this film then also leans so heavily into a non-linear narrative. Yes which is also a lot of Giallo. Also very similar to Giallo stuff. Hitchcock was not quite working in that mode necessarily, but yeah, so much of it is about gradually revealing information to you, the audience, that you are kind of putting the puzzle together, hence Jigsaw puzzles. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> Get it? Also, also flashback to pieces that we did recently, uh, just mashing those yeah. fucking puzzle pieces together, but so much of this movie is informed by a lot of that stuff, and that's kind of what I appreciate about it is, again, at least for this first movie, because I 100% agree with y'all, the rest of the series leans hard into, like, the zeitgeist from that moment, right? This movie had been written years before, two on, two was greenlit the opening weekend of this movie, so from that moment on, all the sequels are immediately tainted by, like, what is happening currently. Right. right. Not necessarily tainted, just influence. Tainted is not the word I meant, but uh, yeah, yes. I was, was going to say, I, I kind of enjoy the idea of seeing some CEOs get their shit oh, wrecked by murder right? traps. But that's what's interesting <laughs> is, Lauren, you just said this first movie is so much like John Kramer jigsaw being like, these are the people who wronged me personally, and mm-hmm. I'm going to like work my way up to this. And that's what every fucking giallo movie kind of is there's like all these oh, yeah. hearings about a larger conspiracy at play deep red is that to the max there's a bigger <laughs> thing going on here and is who is actually the killer and mm-hmm. it leads you in all these red herring directions where you think it's this person no they're just helping the killer or it's this person no they are pretending to be the killer but they're not really the killer like there's all this bullshit that's kind of built around the whole thing and yet then every giallo just kind of ends up being it was me the whole time. I've been here since the very first scene. Ha <laughs> ha. Like, it's always that kind of thing. So that's kind of what I appreciate about this one in hindsight is it really just does boil down to both of these guys being fucking film nerds and being like, yo, we love all this shit. We want to make our own movie. Let's think of an idea. I mean, and, and literally after they graduated film school, they wanted to come up with their own idea because they loved Blair Witch and they love the idea of keep it simple, stupid. Few people, simple storyline, contained location, and they love Darren Aronofsky's pie, weirdly enough, and just the idea of a sprawling conspiracy and all this weird shit happening. It becomes super overly complex, right? It could have easily gone off the rails, but they stick the landing. And it's even more impressive because, again, this being Juan's first film. And them having no budget and shooting this thing in 18 days. 18 days? 18 days. They shot this in fucking 18 days? And you days? start seeing stuff like, oh, Danny Glover literally filmed all of his shit in two days. Shawnee Smith filmed all of her stuff in like one day while she had a crazy flu. They filmed this movie fast. And it was literally just because we have less than a million dollars to shoot it on. And then it made over a hundred million. Yeah, like right? blew up. <laughs> but, you know, once they got done with the main shoot, they realized, oh shit, we're missing a lot of pieces. This does not work. And so then having that ingenuity of being a filmmaker and thinking like, how do we make this work? And working with the editor, they literally 
came up with the idea of let's pad this shit out with still photos and newspaper clippings and surveillance footage. They did all this other stuff to kind of make the pieces all fit together. Jigsaw puzzles. But then there's also, to go back to our Evil Dead episode, there's a lot of fake shimping that happened as well, too, where they were like, fuck, we can't get these people back. So it was a lot of Lee Whannell literally going out and buying a wig to be Shawnee Smith and then like shooting him from just the right angle so you don't see it's him, you know, but he's standing in as her because they need to get some extra shots. So there's a lot of that stuff that makes this movie come together. So again, it just kind of goes back to what I said earlier of everything about this movie. This is the kind of filmmaking I love, where it literally is just the best right place, right time, right people kind of creative flow all happening. And it just makes this thing that happens to come out like right in the perfect time. So Lauren and Heather, something I wanted to ask you guys, because usually I'm the one who like does this part of the since you guys are both here would you recommend this movie to horror newbies especially ones that actually haven't seen saw do you think it is too scary for them do you think people are disturbed by body horror or gore would it be too gory or do you think this is just the right for like a good introduction dip your toes in i think it depends on the individual and what they like Because I think torture porn is one of those things you have to be careful with recommending because some people just don't like it. And that's okay. Everybody gets to have their preferences. You're allowed not to like this series. But what I think is really interesting about it is Saw is not scary to me. It's not terrifying. It's horrible in the way that people want to stop and gawk at a car wreck or a train wreck and you want to watch it but you feel bad for watching it too because you're like i'm not supposed to see this i shouldn't want to see this but it's that morbid fascination right and so if you have that kind of curiosity and that kind of draw to the morbid i don't think it's actually super scary i think it's just horrific in concept you say you don't want want to watch this horrible thing happen then but when he dropped that flip phone line i I wanted him to die (laughs) anyway continue (laughs) yeah i think it's just unsettling right it's not scary to me it's just very unsettling and like it's one of those that you have to think about what about it attracts you you know like why do i like this movie what is it about me that's drawn to like watching this man crawl through barbed wire you know I think that's more the point than getting a scare out of it. It's there to make you uncomfortable and to unsettle you. And so if you like that and you want to explore that, if you want to probe those feelings and sort of examine that, I think it's great. I would absolutely recommend it. If you don't like your horror movies to be mean and you don't like gore and you're not into that, don't watch it. It's I think it's good for some people and not for others. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that with this movie... There are so many other movies I would recommend before this one. And I don't know that I would recommend this movie to most people. Like, I'm trying to conceive of a situation where I'd be like, hey, you should watch Saw. (laughs) It's different when we were all high schoolers, and this was very much exactly your experience. This was a dare movie. This was, oh God, this movie's so fucked up. You want to watch this movie? And you would watch it at sleepovers and shit and hanging out. Yes, It's different in that context versus as an adult who is supposedly well-adjusted telling people, (laughs) you should absolutely watch this movie about torture. It's a different thing in terms of how you recommend this movie and how you come across this movie. Right. And I think, too, 
this is really such a, you know, we've kind of said cynical. The word I wrote down is nihilistic, which isn't quite, Uh you know, the perfect term. But even thinking about the ending, where it's just the guy stands up, he's not actually dead, they close the door, and nothing is really that resolved. It doesn't end well. You don't leave it going, boy, I feel great now. It's not that kind of No, the ending is horrible. Yeah. If you want to take that uh, nihilism, you were saying it might not be the best way to describe it, but it is a good way because even the ending ends in pure darkness because he shuts the door on him. It's pretty brutal. It just has such a dark view of people and everything. <laughs> like it's, yeah, I, I can't really conceive of a situation outside of, you know, 17 year old me with my friends being like, hey, we should watch a horror movie. Let's watch Saw. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess my answer is no. I think (laughs) I also think it sort of selects if you're a horror fan and you know, oh, I want to watch something that's kind of fucked up. You can find this movie, right? I don't have to tell you about it. I don't have to recommend it to you. If I know you're a horror person and we're like talking about watching movies or what we like, I'm happy to tell you I enjoy Saw, but I definitely wouldn't be like, you have to watch this. You know, you need to watch it. Whereas I would force literally everybody I know, I would rope them to a chair and make them watch The Witch. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, yeah. But but this movie, not so much. Right. Well, and I, I kind of posed the question to you guys because I was struggling. Like, how scary is this movie? Who would I actually recommend this to? Uh, you're right, because like any horror fan is already going to know about Saw. But I would say to take that thought a little further, if you're someone who like wants to get an idea of the time and place of cultural like touchstones when it comes to horror as a whole. I think Saw is one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you want to see like mid to early aughts, this is where our mindset was. This is a good example of that. And one that was so ubiquitous to culture for those couple of years. You know, like right. there's a lot yeah. of stuff that I could also point you to that was very indicative of the culture and the zeitgeist. But it's way more off the beaten path stuff. Not as well spoofed on. Yeah. Even things that are like in this same sub sub genre. I mean, Calvair, I think, came out literally the same year, is also about torture, is also a horror movie that's super fucked up. But that's not necessarily one that I would say watch this because it has pop culture significance, right? Like right. Saw. Saw was literally fucking spoofed all over the place. You constantly saw the fucking goofy Billy doll. People just doing the joke of, you know, uh, what's your favorite cigar? That was Scream, not <laughs> yeah. fucking what's your favorite cigar, but just, you know. What's your favorite cereal? Is that what you what's said? Your cereal? <laughs> I wouldn't not recommend it. Like, I wouldn't tell I would somebody, not recommend it don't either. watch it. Yeah. It's just know yeah. yourself. And if that's something you're into, hit it. And if it's not, that's okay. And I think, like Heather said, it totally depends on, like, what your peccadillos are. Because for me, nothing in this movie bothers me. And I know that's fucked to say. But as we've talked about in the podcast before, the things that bother me are sexual abuse things. There's none of that in this series. What bothers me is children genuinely being hurt, loss of innocence. There's none of that in this movie, right? Or, well, well, the daughter does have, like, a gun held to her head at the end, so sure. Yeah, because I'm kind of the same way as you when it comes to this movie. Nothing really bothered me. Except the one thing I felt a little uncomfortable about, and it's more now having Autumn in my life. Yeah, all the moments like the gun being held to red, her basically also getting abducted and tied up. And just then the thought of she now has to live with this trauma and possibly without a parent, that fucked me up a little bit. But that's, again, more like me putting myself in in that movie rather than 
But as far as all the other stuff, yeah, yeah. it didn't bother me too much. And that, that's the point that I was kind of making was, would I recommend this to somebody? Probably, because there's nothing in this that bothers me. So I feel kind of like, eh, it's fine, but everything that's in here could totally bother somebody else. You didn't feel claustrophobic at all? There's not really anything in this first one that made me feel claustrophobic. Interesting. I'm fine okay. being in a room. We fucking live in a house. <laughs> There was not really anything in this first movie that pressed my, like, claustrophobia buttons, necessarily. Not that I remember, at least. But, again, I think it just totally depends, like Heather said, on what are your particular things that bug you? Because I feel fine saying, watch Saw at this point. You should know, pop culture-wise, what you're getting into. It's just mm -hmm. been so ubiquitous in culture that I feel fine recommending this to, like, High school kids on up, really, you know, I, yeah, I don't know, but, again, it. maybe I'm fucked in that way, but this was very much a like coming of age, again, rite of passage kind of movie when we were all growing up. You know, would I show this to a, a seven year old? Hell no. <laughs> oh, you're 15. Yeah. Watch this shit. Who cares? You could be watching yeah. way worse horror shit, specifically way worse torture porn era stuff. There's so much more stuff that. This is baby's tip of the iceberg when it comes to that subgenre. I feel honestly pretty fine, especially when there's like a Halloween Horror Nights for Saw, where you can go through like a fucking Saw walkthrough house maze. Like, I, I feel that. fine recommending <laughs> it to people. Oh, uh, I was going to say, have any of you guys done that? Yes, me. Heather went that year. I yeah. have done a Saw maze. It was absolutely terrifying. I was there with four people. They all waded through shit, <laughs> dug through a pit of needles. <laughs> no, Jen and Forrest wouldn't do it. So only two of us would. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> Jen and Forrest oh, wow. would not do that. And so it was just me and Matt. And it was very fun and very scary. No one got their head caved in by a uh, reverse bear No trap. one got their head caved in, but I do have a commemorative shot glass that I still own. Nice. <laughs> Speaking of building on your point, Aaron, of there are torture porn era movies that would be way worse. I think a lot of the really harmful stuff that can be found in horror movies, this one doesn't have, like you said, yeah. sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. It's also not misogynistic, mm -hmm. really. Very equal opportunity killing. Yes. And there's nothing that's, you know, objectification in that sense, like gratuitous yeah. nudity, any just blatant misogyny like yeah. there would have yeah. been in some others. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I was, I kept thinking about watching this movie I wonder if I would recommend this as a horror movie for someone who likes escape rooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's essentially just a really, really lame eight hour three task escape room. You're right. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think escape rooms were influenced? Because escape rooms are a fairly new concept. Were they influenced by Saw, you guys Absolutely. think? Absolutely. I would assume so. Yeah. They did come out so much later, it seems like. I think I've done like four or five. Yeah. I did kind of have a moment where I was like, this is an escape room, literally. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, is that part of why I, I like this franchise so much is that it's really just watching a series of vignettes of escape rooms. I mean, that's a good point. You know, like you said, Aaron, it's it's all the set pieces. And the, the set pieces and the vignettes are like really when this movie, when this movie in particular and the series as a whole like really shine, the plot can get kind of contrived. Like I said earlier, mm -hmm. I think some of the like procedural police stuff just does not work for me. But yeah. every time somebody is in a trap, I am riveted to the screen. Those sequences are so good. Yes. Even just the two of them in the room trying to figure it out was way more interesting to me than the procedurals yeah. with the police. They're both doing the same thing of putting, again, the puzzle pieces together, wonk, wonk, wonk. 
But when it's just the two victims in the room trying to figure it out, that's insanely more watchable and interesting than anything like the police are doing to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I was a big lost head back in the day. I really like Ken Lung. Michael Emerson, I love. I would love more Zep in this movie. Michael Emerson is the best. Yeah, the cast is solid. I think when we rewatched it recently, it really was constantly just be like, oh, yeah, I forgot they're in this. What the fuck? Oh, this person. Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah, the cast mm-hmm. of this is really fun in hindsight. I f- honestly forgot Danny Glover was in this. Uh-huh. Completely forgot he was in this. Yeah, he was the big name that was lending this movie credibility and gravitas when it came out. Like, look, oh, this mainstream actor is in this horror movie, so it's valid, right? Props to him for like being okay with what happens to his character, because his uh, character is ultimately like an exercise in futility and failure by the end of yeah. this movie. Yeah. Well, again, going back to Giallo stuff, how often does the like detective character just unceremoniously bite it and like they're just gone from the story, right? <laughs> yeah. the last discussion point I had before we kind of move into like quick talk about the production and the cast and stuff like that is John Kramer, aka Jigsaw. Is he a murderer? Yes, I feel like we've already discussed right? that. Yeah, that's not a talking point. He's a murderer. Yes. Okay. Uh, see, but up, up, so see, here we go. Lauren's making the like. Uh, <laughs> all right, Lauren. So it's the entire <laughs> argument about Manson. Well, he didn't actually kill anybody, but it's second degree murder. But is it? It's the kind of bullshit where like Tucker Carlson's like in my head right now, where it's just just asking questions. Just asking questions. Is John Kramer really a murderer? Did he actually kill anybody in these movies? What's really funny is as soon as you said that, I started going on, you know, like any member of any fandom where you're like, well, actually, in this movie, it was real, but it was this person that had done this thing. And then this did it, you know, that that Lauren's yarn map appeared on the wall behind her. (laughs) (laughs) It was just an all star cast. Luke from Gilmore Girls. (laughs) But anyway, moving aside the whole thing that's revealed about about you know his sidekicks later on is he a murderer yeah i think he's a murderer i'm sorry that was very yeah. anticlimactic but for a minute there i was like well yeah. amanda yeah. detective hoffman i was ready and I, I can't believe i'm saying this if the traps were more fair then there might be more of an argument there but i think the traps are already so like stacked against the victim that He's expecting like a 90% fail rate. Yeah. He He's a murderer. He's a serial killer in my opinion. Well, this also goes a bit beyond like even the Manson. He's a killer. I, I literally just brought this up as like a fun, like, let's just talk through that. And my like legal brain wife sitting next to me, I figure would have some kind of clever, like, well, actually. Yeah. Well, actually, what would he be charged with if he was arrested, Heather? And conspiracy to commit murder, I assume. Yeah. If not just straight up second degree murder. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what Manson was ultimately nailed on. The difference is Manson just, you know, put a bunch of shit in a bunch of people's heads, gave them the drugs, gave them a method, essentially, whereas fucking John Kramer literally built the traps, literally made the arrangements for these people to get abducted, paid rent on warehouses to house all this shit. (laughs) Abandoned warehouses. So many. He literally did every single step involved in the normal serial killer bullshit except for actually put the knife in their heart himself, right? He's really no different than a Gotham supervillain, let's be honest. Heather's giving me the, like, okay, serious talk. Yeah, if you want the legal take, there is a concept in the law called felony murder, that basically if a murder is committed within the commission of another felony, even if you didn't intend that person to die, 
but somebody is killed and you're like an accomplice, you're part of the gang, even if somebody else killed that person, you're the getaway driver for a bank robbery where someone is shot in the commission of the bank robbery. Yeah, so it's like an armed robbery where someone gets killed. Right. Even if you're just the getaway driver, because you are participating in the commission of that felony, you can also be considered guilty of murder Mm -hmm. and charged for murder for your participation in that felony if your state has felony murder statutes. So, yes, you could absolutely charge Jigsaw as a murderer because in the commission of these other felonies, Jigsaw has participated in the murder, at least indirectly, but he was part of the conspiracy, part of the the crew that did the murder. So under a felony law, as well jurisdiction, as you could kill him. All the rest of his charge cronies, him. you could say they were all part of the puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> They are all jigsaws. Yeah. <laughs> Felony murder doctrine is a little bit complicated. I'm going to shout out another podcast. My favorite legal podcast is Five to Four. They did an episode on felony murder, which is really, really good. Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of any conceivable reason why someone would say he isn't. And I think the only thing they would say would be he didn't physically walk up to the person and like cut them with the razor wire. But I don't think that holds up under any strain. They didn't consent to be in those situations. They don't know him. He had to, like you said, contrived kidnapping to get them there. And it's designed to where there's really like two things that can happen. Either you horribly mutilate yourself in order to escape or you die. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Again, putting on my Tucker Carlson fucking doofy bow tie. It's it's just. Now, Edward Digma, a.k.a. The Riddler, <laughs> did he actually cause any mischief? Did he actually, like, hurt anybody? Because his traps just are there. People just find them. He's just leaving clues. He's just asking questions. I'm, I'm just, just asking, asking questions. questions. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same goofy logic and argument. I remember growing up, people talking about, well, is Jigsaw really a killer when you think about it? He caused all this shit to happen, yes. Absolutely. It's just the technicality of what do we legally call this? But yes, he's a killer. Yeah. So this is a good point to like transition into production real quick. I kind of mentioned a lot of it already. So again, both of these guys are Aussies. Both went to film school together, became buds. They wanted to make their own movie. They were at the screenplay in early 2001, and they just couldn't find backers in Australia. So they like literally hedged all their bets, came to Hollywood, shopped it around, Everybody fucking turned it down. What they kind of backed up and did was, I mean, A, they reworked some elements. So originally it was going to be like two people stuck in an elevator. And the whole thing was going to be shown via security camera footage. Because again, they were inspired by Blair Witch. So the whole like found footage thing was, you know, an angle. The Jigsaw character was also not part of the story originally. Winnell only got that idea because he had crazy fucking migraines and he finally went to go see a neurologist and he had this whole thought about if I had a fucking tumor and only had a few months left to live, what would I do? And so that kind of became the impetus for that whole part of the story. But interestingly enough, and I wrote these notes and kind of started doing this research before we did our Evil Dead episode, but Derek, you will remember because we just did this. They did the same exact thing that Raimi and Tappert and Campbell did, where in order to like sell the idea of, hey, this is what we want to make, they shot a short film titled Saw. 
Interesting. Okay, I didn't know. I never knew this. Yeah, they spent five grand. They made a short film starring Winnell, and it's basically just the opening of the movie where you see Shawnee Smith in the reverse bear trap and the whole voiceover and everything else. I mean, they literally just did that part. They like used some of Winnell's co-workers from the TV station that he worked at, and that was basically it. It was just like a calling card proof of concept pitch that they used to like sell it because the script itself just wasn't cutting it. They were kind of pushing this package of Juan can direct, we both wrote it, and Winnell will star in it. So, like, we're it. We can do all. <laughs> I, I do have to laugh that, like, he wrote this, produced it, starred in it, and, like, the two leads are him and Carrie Ellis, who are not Americans, playing Americans. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say, Winnell does a pretty good job of hiding his accent. Yeah, he does. Carrie Ellis, not so much. And why should the people listen to you? Because... Unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. But yeah, eventually they landed with Evolution Entertainment, and they were so fucking hot on it that they literally created a whole new sub-label called Twisted Pictures. Twisted Pictures! Specifically, like, for this movie, they created this whole subdivision of their group, which was a staple through the 2000s. There were a lot of twisted pictures that we saw. You know you're ready for some real Ots gore fest when you saw <laughs> twisted pictures and distribution by Lionsgate. Well, again, new metal. Just new metal everywhere. The other big gamble that they took they wanted full creative control and Juan took no salary directors have done this wow. it's very rare but he basically just put all of his money where his mouth was and said like look give us a profit stake on the back end let's make this movie and it paid off well for them like i mentioned they shot it in 18 days they shot the entire thing chronologically when you're dealing with blood and costumes and actors state of minds and whatnot for things like this where it's very self-contained in some ways, it is easier just to shoot the whole fucking thing chronologically in order. Yeah, because I, I was reading, I didn't realize Shawnee Smith had the flu, but I saw that her scenes specifically were pretty taxing, So, but I didn't realize she was sick. Yeah, I, I think this movie was taxing for most of them because it was all just so fast. Yeah. They had a $700,000 shooting budget. Because of that, again, super constricted in what they could do, so... The bathroom set is the only constructed set. Everything else that was shot at Lacey Street Studio, which is like a converted warehouse, every other scene, the detective's offices, the police precinct, the like engineering room, the doctor's office room, like all of that is just other rooms in this giant fucking warehouse that they just set dressed. Which is why the hospital doesn't really make sense in terms of how it looks and is laid out. It's why fucking Carrie Elwes' house is grody, industrial, modern, lofty with exposed brick and beams and shit. <laughs> Heather and I were joking about that. That house the entire was fucking time. wild. Like, it literally was just, <laughs> oh, here is our rough, exposed brick wall. Because this is a like modern, hip loft apartment. And they just hung a fucking curtain <laughs> over it. Yeah, it's a fucking wild house. The other thing that I loved was they pulled the same exact shit that they do so often in these movies where, well, fuck, we don't have the money to shoot a car chase. 
that ain't happening. Hang blackout curtains everywhere. Turn all the lights off. (laughs) Pump some smoke into the room. Have them sit in the car and just ah, ah, just pretend to be driving <laughs> while the camera's like kind of shaking and just th- there's your car chase and they were just going to like edit back and forth real quick right yeah we want to talk about stuff that didn't age well that made me laugh out loud when they were doing that I think I backed it up two or three times when we were watching Yeah I, I did the same you could absolutely see the curtain in the background you could <laughs> tell like oh he's not actually moving like this smoke and fog is all completely static floating over the car And they just edit it so breakneck fast that it gives you enough of the illusion, Mm -hmm. right? They never explicitly reveal where this movie is set. But at one point, Danny Glover and Lung are like looking at a map and it's a map of Washington, D.C., where we happen to live now. Hey, Um, so we may get jigsawed. Yeah. Hopefully he doesn't (laughs) put me in a dirty bathroom. I mean, hopefully he (laughs) just goes after lots of shitty Congress people. That's true. That's true. Um, There are a lot of people I would come after in D.C. No, the goofy jigsaw doll, Billy, was built by James Wan. Like I said, it's a direct homage to Argento's Deep Red. But for this first movie, it's literally just fucking paper towel and toilet paper tubes. Paper mache, clay, and like ping pong balls. There is nothing holding that motherfucker together. (laughs) It's a child's little like suit and then a tricycle that they got at like a thrift shop. Obviously, from two on, they rebuilt the puppet entirely and he's got actual animatronics in him and all this other bullshit. But it's still super effective, right? The first moment you see yeah. that goofy some bitch roll down the hallway, you're like, "What is this?" <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> creepy, right? Yeah. yeah. What is this motherfucker? That's absolutely one of my favorite things about this first movie. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. the puppet and the voice too. It doesn't have like a goofy Keebler elf. <laughs> I'm coming to fucking challenge you. <laughs> it goofy doll turns and is just like, "What are you doing, motherfucker?" <laughs> that weird cackle, that like, <laughs> like it does have a weird laugh. Yeah, it does have a weird laugh. Yeah. yeah. I, I love them. Again, because the shooting schedule was so tight, L was in 1L had no rehearsal time. They literally just showed up on the day and started fucking going. Part of that was because they had to accommodate Michael Emerson and Danny Glover's schedules because, again, they only shot for like a day or two each. So it was like, well, fuck, we only have Danny Glover on Wednesday. <laughs> so we have to get all that done. And they shot this chronologically. That's crazy with juggling well, like these people. They shot all the stuff with Carrie Elwes and Lee Winnell. Like, uh, in the okay, okay, yeah. Chronologically, they shot all the stuff with the cops. Not like in the chrono- chronology of the movie. No, no, there's no way they could have done that, right? Because that would have been impossible. That's still too much jumping back and forth because again it's all about scheduling and who can they get when Mm -hmm. so as far as the cast goes again we've got carrie elwes him and danny glover were like the two big stars for this that everybody's like wow they got them savannah put on uh the princess bride the other night Uh as something to have on that autumn can also watch and it just trips me up so much that he's wesley in that and then he's in this he had a really fucking good run Mm -hmm. okay so he's in the bride Right before The Princess Bride, which that's like another horror movie. Days of Thunder, Hot Shots, Bram Stoker's Dracula that we've talked about on here. The Crush that I just talked about. Robin Hood Men in Tights, The Chase, The Fucking Jungle Book, Twister, Liar Liar, Kiss the Girls, which was the first or maybe the second of those Alex Cross detective movies with Morgan Freeman, which I say that specifically because it's going to come back up again. 
He voices a character in Batman Beyond. There's our Batman animated series reference. He voiced a lot of English dubs for several of the Ghibli movies that came out in the 90s. And then he's in Shadow of the Vampire. So, like, he had a really fucking good run in the late 80s and through the 90s. But then it's just poof, TV, random movies, you know, after Saw. He's in a couple of episodes of Stranger Things. He's in the new Black Christmas. The Unholy, which just recently came out, Blackberry. But I did see he's about to be in Mission Impossible. And that's coming out soon. So yeah, Carrie was was immediately intrigued after seeing the short film. So again, this was another one of those instances of here's your calling card to sell people on the idea of what you're wanting to do. Later, fun fact, he sued his management firm and the producers claiming that he was promised a 1% stake of the profits. And apparently he only received $53,000 of what should be like $2.6 million. I was about to say, that's nothing. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Oh my gosh. yeah, apparently they settled out of court, and he refused to reprise his role for the immediate sequels, which is why he's not in them. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if they paid him. I don't know if he kind of came around, but he obviously returns for Saw 3D, which is seven, right? Saw 3D? <laughs> I, it's not Saw 3D. Th- Lauren, you're our expert. <laughs> I just know that that's Saw 3D. Okay, I think it literally is. It is seven. I, I, I just four, looked it up. Five, six, and then three D is seven. Yes. Yeah, three D seven. Because eight is just called Jigsaw, right? Yes. Okay. I just always called it Saw three D because it was in three D. <laughs> yeah. I saw it in, in theaters. In three D. Yeah. Darn. I did. You saw all the blood splattering at you. Yep. Oh, yeah. oh, I'm glad that like they figured it out or whatever, and now like he reprised his role after the fact. So that's and that's cool. that's one thing that I was looking forward to because I know, and I think it's that one everybody comes back for because then it becomes a AA meeting for victims of Jigsaw. And so it's a lot of people from the previous movies coming back. So I'm, I'm interested to get to that one. One real quick thing about him. I do love that he got and more than one, I think from what I remember, just like, you know how much of a clusterfuck everything was during the Trump presidency and then leading up to the election against Biden. No, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> Not at all. Oh yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> I remember this happening. It just was something I totally forgot about until I reread it again, looking into stuff about Saw. Ellis got in like Twitter spats with fucking Ted Cruz because Hell Ted yeah. Cruz is a proposed Princess Bride fan and uh, Ellis was not into that. Yeah. And Hell yeah. King shit. Yeah, apparently he initiated a 2020 fundraiser with many of the Princess Bride cast members to support Joe Biden in Wisconsin and raised over $4 million for Wisconsin Democrats right. in response to like that feud with Ted Cruz. Shut on you, Carrie. Fucking eat so, shit, Ted Cruz. Yeah. On him, I've kind of been sitting here thinking about his career. You know, we talked about it so early on. I wonder if it was Saw that we could point to as the like downturn or that same year he was in Ella Enchanted. And <laughs> that movie is rough. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if he's good in it. I think the thing with him is he commits. Yeah. And even in this, he's committing, you know, even if his accent is a bit shaky, like he's 100% all in on this movie. You're right. And that's the worst I can ever really say about him is his accent is never the best, but Mm -hmm. he always, he always brings it. Right, he's always able to watch. Yeah. Well, did you guys see he was he was in something called The Riverman where he played Ted Bundy? 
also this yeah, year in 2004. That. I could see that. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what his Ted Bundy was yeah. like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember him just chewing the scenery in Ella Enchanted, but I don't know if it even matters if he was good in that movie because no, the whole movie is just <laughs> rough. Yeah. Speaking of chewing the scenery, he's the fucking smarmy, rich hunter asshole villain in that 90s Jungle Book movie with Lena Headey and Jason Scott Lee. And it is delightful. <laughs> it was when Disney was doing all those live action movies in the 90s. They did a Jungle Book and it kind of fucking rocks. I had that on VHS. Hell yeah. Guess who directed that, Derek? Fucking the guy who directed Predator 2 with Danny Glover. <laughs> anyway. It's all full circle. It's all full circle, baby. <laughs> well, I also forgot he was even in Twister. I forget who the fuck he played in Twister because I haven't watched Twister in forever. Oh, he's the douchey the villain new, character. the new boyfriend for the wife? Oh, is he really? No, he's the villain character. He's the guy that's running the other crew of Storm Chasers. The entire movie, yeah. And he, like, gets fucking creamed at the end of the movie. (laughs) Of course he does. Yeah. So, Lee Winnell, a.k.a. the other guy in the room, who was the fresh (laughs) face that nobody knew when this movie came out and was like, uh, who the hell is this guy? He's great in this movie. Being an Aussie, he was in some Aussie TV. And, again, being an Aussie actor, just like being a New Zealand actor, you were pretty much contractually obligated to be in every Warner Brothers production that happened in Australia during the early 2000s because they built that giant studio. So he is in The Matrix Reloaded, and he is in Enter the Matrix, the video game. Interesting that that is what he is in right before making Saw. Then he goes on to be in Death Sentence. This is James Wan's third movie. It was the one he did after Dead Silence, which is kind of a riff on Death Wish. He comes back for Saw 3. He is a star in the Insidious series, which I'm excited about that new one. Trailer looks pretty good. Well, and I saw he co-wrote or wrote all the Insidious movies. Yes, getting to that. He yeah. is also in Cooties, which is delightful. And Aquaman, he is a background character in that because James Wan directed Aquaman. Yeah, they seem to be bros. Yeah, they're still bros. Yeah, totally. They both catapulted off of Saw and he's written a lot of James Wan yeah. stuff. And helped produce uh, some of it. So, like I mentioned earlier, Winnell would write Saw 2 and 3, which it's interesting that, like, he stuck around, but Juan moved on. I'm not sure, like, what was in it for Winnell necessarily, other than obviously a paycheck. But, you know, was he, like, specifically, no, I've got more shit I want to do with Saw. So he does those. He also wrote the treatment for the first Saw video game that came out, which is, like, set between the first two movies and is a continuation of Danny Glover's whole story. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, he writes Dead Silence, which is Juan's movie after this. He wrote all the Insidious movies and directed the third one. Dead Silence fucked me up. Dead Silence fucking rules. Love it. I know we're going to cover it eventually, and I am so afraid of that movie. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of creepy puppets and shit. Oh, I'm, I'm Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah. I have a, an electric saver. I got my tongue ripped out. The other t- God damn it. I hadn't seen that movie in years. I want to watch it again now. The other two I was going to mention, he's in a fucking awesome horror sci-fi movie called Upgrade that he wrote and directed. And I know I brought it up on the show a couple of years back, and I think even Lamplew did. And then he did The Invisible Man, which came out recently that was like the last movie that came out before the fucking covid lockdown Mm -hmm. and i don't know if he's still involved with possibly doing the like wolfman movie with fucking ryan gosling that there was that moment after invisible man where blumhouse and universal were like fuck it let's redo 
the Universal Monsters movies because Karin Kasama was supposed to do Dracula. Yeah. The Wolfman movie. I, I don't know what happened to any of that. I don't know if it's just all like DOA or what. And Invisible Man was was super successful. And honestly, COVID probably fucked up a lot of those it plans. Did. It, yeah. it did. Because that movie would have made a lot more money if COVID had not fucked everything up. Mm-hmm. Danny Glover is the third main lead in this first movie. He plays Detective Tap. I wrote down a lot of shit. I mean, if you don't know what Danny Glover has been in, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Predator 2, baby. Yeah, Predator 2, yeah. Dude has actually been in some horror shit previously. To Sleep With Anger is a very interesting Charles Burnett movie that's kind of like a magical realism thing with a little bit of a dark angle to it. Obviously, like you said, Predator 2, he's in Beloved. Worked with all kinds of fucking people. Lars von Trier in Manderley. Like, speaking of our recent Patreon, he was just in The Dead Don't Die, which is like a Jim Jarmusch zombie movie. He delivers one of my favorite lines in any movie. Diplomatic community. It's just been revoked. It's just been revoked. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah, lethal weapon. Jesus Christ. And yeah, he's still doing shit. He was just in that second Jumanji sequel where the kids morph into him. And then, like I said, yeah, he is the main character in this Saw video game from 2009 that he apparently provided the voice work for. And so the whole deal is Jigsaw finds his body, heals his gunshot wounds, and then throws him into an abandoned asylum full of puzzles and shit that you have to solve. Why? I, I don't know. I guess to like, <laughs> My question is why? He has more sins that have to be rectified. He didn't appreciate life. <laughs> he didn't appreciate that bullet Just that he got. Just let the man die. <laughs> this was like a PS3, Xbox 360 era game. And there was a second one. There was a Saw 2 colon Flesh and Blood. What the fuck? <laughs> that came out the next year. And that one actually follows Danny Glover's son, who is estranged. And he's now investigating his disappearance. So it's interesting that years later, there are these two video games that are direct sequels to this first movie we're talking about. So he didn't actually provide the voice. It was actually a guy named Earl Alexander uh, okay, okay, who okay. provided the verse. Yeah, I read where he had, but that might have been wrong. Yeah. yeah. Like Heather mentioned, Ken Lung is Detective Singh. He is Danny Glover's partner. Also, interesting filmography. He's in Todd Solondz's Welcome to the Dollhouse, um, which if you want more Todd Solondz talk again, Patreon. Rush Hour, Family Man, Artificial Intelligence, Vanilla Sky, Red Dragon, Squid and the Whale, Inside Man, X-Men 3, where he plays Kid Omega, but is definitely clearly not Quentin Quire. And then he's in Lost for a good chunk of that show, which Heather and I both liked that show. I mean, despite the ending, I mean, that show was fucking fun when it was on. Yeah, because we're, we're going to talk about Lost again with uh, Emerson. Did you catch that wave, Lauren? Because I completely missed Lost. And it was such a cultural touchstone at the time. I actually didn't watch it while it was coming on until the last season. The last season was the only one I watched live. Hmm. I watched it as it was coming on for sure. I remember like watching the pilot being like, holy shit, this is a TV show and kind of keeping up with it from there. Yeah. So Lauren and I just haven't watched it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen any Lost. I remember people talking about it as it was coming out, but yeah, nothing. It's a show that I think if it was on streaming on something easily accessible, like Netflix, it would probably have like a whole second life with people rediscovering it. But it did feel like it was like the first kind of Game of Thrones-esque cooler talk. Everyone talks about the new episode of Lost. That was huge. It was that show for that time. I mean, there have 
always been yeah. water cooler TV shows like that. At least the first one that really yeah. popped up when for we me. were like paying attention to shit. Yeah, yeah. Ken Lung also has a small role in The Force Awakens. He was in that terrible Inhumans show that they tried to get off the ground. Womp womp. He is also <laughs> in Old, the beach that makes you old. Dina Meyer plays the other detective. Early movie crush for me in that she is in both Dragonheart and Starship Troopers. She got her start in Beverly Hills 90210, I know. And I just recently watched Johnny Mnemonic for the first time. I thought for years I had seen Johnny Mnemonic. Turns out I had not. And she's the cyborg assassin hot chick in that that Keanu Reeves falls in love with. She's in Bats. She plays Barbara Gordon, Oracle, in the Birds of Prey show. That was a thing on UPN or CW or like whatever that channel was back in the day. I think it was like the WB. For only 14 episodes. Yeah, because that show only lasted one season and got canceled because it was not good. So yeah, we have a animated and a live action Batman reference in this one. (laughs) She is also in Piranha 3D as far as more horror goes. And then, of course, she comes back for Saw 2, 3, and 4. I was very delighted in our last rewatch to see, oh, Dina's back. Monica Potter plays Carrie Elwes' wife, Allison. Also, real interesting career. Mm -hmm. Bulletproof, con air, put the bunny back in the box. Put the bunny back in the box. She is in the other Alex Cross detective movie with Morgan Freeman, Along Came a Spider. (laughs) So both her and Elwes are in two different movies of that series with him. She's in the Last House on the Left remake. And then she's like been on Parenthood for like fucking 10 years. It's wild whenever we get to people and it's like, where has this person been? I haven't seen them in years. Oh, they've been on a TV show for 15 years and 700 episodes. (laughs) Living the good life. Uh (laughs) Collecting that paycheck. The daughter is played by Mackenzie Vega. She is in The Family Man, Nick Cage. Made Sin City. She is also in X-Men 3. I thought you were going to say retired from acting when she was no. traumatized by Emmerich holding a gun on her. No, rare instance of actually bounded into a career, yeah. She's in a pretty fun horror movie from a couple of years ago called Fender Bender. And then 13 Reasons Why, which is a Netflix show that I know was popular a while back. And I only put that because somebody else in the cast is in that as well. Then, yeah, Michael Emerson, like I mentioned a second ago, plays Zip which I refuse to believe that that's a real name. Nobody is named Zep. <laughs> one of his early roles is in Sam Raimi's For Love of the Game, which is one of his rare non-horror oh. movies. It is not very great, but it's an interesting, like, wild swing for him to, like, not do horror or genre shit. He is in Unfaithful. He was in a lot of TV. Again, Lost. Person of Interest was another show that he was on for, like, 300 episodes he was a fan favorite on lost i know that he's one of the main characters of the entire show yeah he doesn't come in until the second season but then he is a major major element and he's very good i think he won at least one emmy yeah he's really good in lost he has done a lot of stage stuff he is a big shakespeare guy and does a lot of stage theater work he was also apparently in a tv miniseries of name of the rose which i need to look into because i like that movie and i didn't even know that existed And apparently he's on a show right now that I've heard is very good and might be something we can do on Patreon eventually called Evil. Yeah. He's also got Mike Coulter in it. I've heard it's very good for like a network 
horror show. It actually goes pretty fucking hard. Same here. Yeah. And then we have another Batman reference because he voices yep. Joker in the Dark Knight Returns animated movie. The Joker. Twisted. Well, no, this is the like very serious. I am no longer crazy Joker. I am sane Joker. I still have to bring up Twisted. Yeah, Twisted. Twisted Pictures. Yeah, thanks, Blank Check. I will never get that out of my head. Twisted. Johnny Smith, who plays Amanda at the beginning, one of the more interesting characters in this whole franchise, I would say. I think she is one of the more interesting characters. She started off in Annie, weirdly enough. She is also in Iron Eagle, Summer School, The Blob, which Derek and I fucking love because it rules, and we will talk about that one day. I forgot she was in The Blob remake. It's She's so good. She's fucking awesome in that. It's so, so good. Her role in that movie is another good example of the average teenage girl that you think is going to be the final girl kind of victim through the whole thing, and she ends up being the, like, torch-wielding badass by the end. Yeah, she's fucking awesome (laughs) in it. Weirdly enough, she's in both of the Mick Garris, Stephen King miniseries from the 90s. She's in The Stand and The Shining. And then she's in, like, weird, small throwaway roles and stuff like Leaving Las Vegas and Armageddon and the weird breakfast of champions movie that they made which i mentioned because my wife is a huge vonnegut fan we also saw her recently in repo the genetic opera because we rewatched that for the first time in years she is on becker for like again five six seasons for a gajillion episodes and then like i mentioned she comes back for saw two three and four and six. Oh, and six okay oh I'm yep. sorry, Roman numerals. That is a six in my notes. Aaron can't read. <laughs> and she's on tap to be in the new Saw movie that's coming out this year, Saw 10. Wait, they're doing another one? What? Yeah, bud. Wow. I, you didn't know no, about this? I hadn't heard about this at all. I didn't yeah. know that they were making it. So I guess it's coming out in October, so they're probably filming it right now. She's reprising her role as Amanda for Saw 10. Sure. Huh, I need to look at this. Cool. I, I guess we'll see where the fuck this goes, because I thought they were, like, going the spiral path in a different direction with the whole franchise. But I guess spiral didn't yeah, really work. Yeah, really like spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think from what I was reading when it was initially announced is they're treating spiral as, like, a side story that happened in this universe. And then Saw 10 is kind of continuing okay. whatever else is going on. Hmm. I don't know this director at all. But uh, apparently he directed uh, Saw 3D, Saw 6. Sure. Kevin Grutert. Kevin Grutert. So he was the editor of this first movie. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Hmm. Shawnee Smith claims not to like horror, yet all of her notable roles are in horror, except for Becker. She turned down the first offer and then later accepted this role. Again, after watching the short film, there's something to be said about like having a proof of concept, right? Mm-hmm. She was specifically Juan's choice because he had a big crush on her growing up. And then he was kind of surprised that they actually got her. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down like Benito Martinez is a cool character actor who shows up. Tobin Bell, fucking Mr. Jigsaw himself. He's also set to appear in Saw 10, by the way. I mean, sure, he's in all of them. Um, he's in all of them. <laughs> Is he in Jigsaw? I haven't seen Jigsaw. Is he in Jigsaw? Or not Not Jigsaw, uh, Spiral. No. I don't, I've only seen Spiral once. Okay. I didn't figure he was in Spiral as much as 
showed up in the background or some bullshit. Right. And most of them, they'll like use his voice or like yeah. his corpse will be laying on a table or something like he's usually quote in them or he'll be in like flashbacks. Lots of outtake footage and scenes from yeah. the previous movies um, where he's still credited. <laughs> I knew I would be dead by now, but 20 years later, here is yeah. this trap room that I, I knew you were going to wander into, even though you yeah. were only four at the time. Yeah, there's a whole lot of flashbacks. Yeah. yeah. I know you're standing in the morgue right now, watching my body burn in the incinerator. Well, guess what? I put a key inside of your skull. <laughs> yeah, he's in like a lot of weird shit from the 80s. Manhattan, Tootsie, The Verdict. Sophie's Choice, Mississippi Burning, Goodfellas. The Quick and the Dead. Yes, he's in The Quick and the Dead, which he's fucking awesome in. Mm-hmm. Malice, which is a fucking hilariously campy Aaron Sorkin written movie. The Firm, which Heather and I just watched fairly recently. Which, Derek, by the way, The Firm is worth watching just for fucking Wilford Brimley from The Thing. <laughs> a decade later, still looking old as shit being like the fixer for this crooked law firm and just him showing up at Tom Cruise's house in kind of a threatening way and just being like, hey, chief, you got a second to talk? It'd be a shame if your wife came home, found a bunch of pornography in your mailbox. Like, it was just him being fucking goofy and threatening as hell. Here's your Abby, one day walking to the mailbox, anticipating the arrival of her red book, her sharper image catalog. What does she find instead? She finds heartache, Mitch. The death of love and trust. Imagine her one day opening that. Devastating. <laughs> well, I'm glad we touched on the Quick and the Dead, because, again, going back to our Evil Dead episode. Yeah, uh, with Raimi. Quick and the Dead, Lauren, both Aaron and I, that's one of our favorite Westerns. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. I'd forgotten Sam Raimi directed it. The Jigsaw part was originally offered to Paul Butters, who is the razor wire trap guy. And he turned it down because he didn't feel that there were enough crucial scenes for the character. Oh, Dude could have had a fucking entire franchise and he was just like, no, there's not enough good shit in this. Were there enough good shit to be the guy that crawls through razor wire? Like, was yeah. that better? I guess he was thinking like, well, at least my role will be memorable. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he regrets that decision ever. I'm sure. Every um, day. Sure, exactly, right? <laughs> he just stares at Tobin Bell's face every day and it's just like it could have been me it could have been me <laughs> it should have been he's me. gonna become the real jigsaw and engineer his entire thing about just getting back to tobin bell you took for granted the fact that you had an entire franchise to yourself well guess what it's payback time <laughs> last weird detail guess what for the entire fucking shoot in the bathroom it is always tobin bell lying on the floor they did not use a dummy they did not use a stand-in it's literally always Tobin Bell that you see in the movie. That is some fucking commitment to just be like, I laid on the floor for all these days that we shot it. I just laid on the floor. The director of photography for this, David Armstrong, shot the whole movie with a shoulder-mounted camera, just quick and dirty, because they wanted to avoid having to do camera setups that would cost them time. So instead of having Mm -hmm. to, like, put the thing on fucking sticks every time he literally just carried it, specifically shot Elwes's stuff steadier, and Winnell's stuff more erratic and frantic to kind of reflect their personalities and their state of mind during the movie. 
That is one of the things that I think really ages this movie. Yeah. It's funny when you're watching it, when they're in the traps, and even though they're in the middle of the traps, almost every one of those sequences includes footage of them just kind of grabbing their heads, screaming and like shaking their heads. And every time I watch that, I'm like, damn girl, you got like seconds ticking down. You could get out of this way faster if you would just get your shit together and stop grabbing your head. Yep. Yeah. The sequels, especially two and three, we were just talking about this during a break, but two and three to me, especially, just have a really bleh 2000s kind of look with hyper editing and just a gross, desaturated kind of look to it that, oof, those movies age bad. But as much as yeah. I'm like critical of that when I watch it, it's such a stylistic thing that you 100% associate with Saw. Yes. And like when you see that, it's like, oh, I'm watching a Saw movie. And if you see something like that in another movie, it makes me think of Saw. Yeah. So it's hard to be super critical of it because as much as I think it's cheesy and weird, it is such a part of that series' visual identity. Yeah. Right. I like that they do tend to stick with it. Yes, they do. I mean, they kind of change it slightly for some movies. But it is always kind of green. It's always kind of grimy. Yeah. It's always rusty and it's nasty. It's a nasty universe to be in. Yeah. I think the one complaint that I have, and again, kudos to them on the budget that they had for mm-hmm. doing practical effects. The blood and gore in this movie is there. Like you see it, it's tactile. They're covered in goop, right? And there is definitely a line in the Saw movies where it switches from being that. It switches from wading through literal tidal waves of animal guts and blood and goop and shit to, like, everything being CGI. Somebody's eyeball gets popped out. It's a CGI eyeball. Somebody's head gets crushed. It's CGI blood. And that's, to me, where I kind of lose the thread and it becomes a little bit disappointing. So the fact that this movie still feels very grounded and tactile and real Mm -hmm. because they're using practical effects, Mm -hmm. kudos. Because again, for how tight this shoot was, it takes time. Mm-hmm. I was joking about being grossed out by digging around in that toilet earlier, but like that bathroom set seriously <laughs> grosses me out every time. Like the brown little heart that's drawn on the wall looks like it's written in somebody's poop. Like yeah. it's just so <laughs> gross. Yeah. And like him being submerged in the bathtub, that's not pristine, crystal clear no. water. No. Oh, no. No. Yeah, yeah, that is chlamydia city right there. Yeah, that's the real (laughs) visceral stuff that makes my skin crawl. But like, again, it's sort of like what I was talking about fall. Sometimes it makes your skin crawl in a fun way. You know what I mean? Like, it's so gross. If I was in that situation, I had to dig in a gross toilet, I'm going to lay down and die. Uh But (laughs) it's fun to see on the screen. Yeah, I think that's part of why I really like Carrie Elvis in this movie is kind of the committing isn't just his actual acting. He looks so gross. Yeah. Yeah. The minute they turn on the lights and he's got the pit stains and like the middle chest stain (laughs) and they have his eye makeup so heavy and he just looks terrible. I feel like with modern movies, and this is very much a sweeping generalization, they wouldn't be that dirty. Yeah. It seems like it would be a lot cleaner. Like the actors would still look relatively pretty and attractive. You wouldn't really have that in a lot of movies. And he was kind of willing to do that and that they actually made him do that. Yeah. It makes sense. You've been in there for eight hours. You're going to be nasty. There's no AC. Yeah. Yeah. And when he starts losing blood, 
how chalky and pale his face looks. Uh-huh. Like, oh, he, like, man. The moment <laughs> in this movie that I remember watching with my mom and my brothers that we backed it up three or four times because we were dying laughing is the moment where he was just losing his shit, screaming, fuck you, you can't do this to me, blah, 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 blah. Can't we get us out of here? And all of a sudden, the like phone rings, and he just turns around and goes, Kelly? Is that you, Seth, you bastard? I know it's you, you son of a bitch! Larry. Holly? <laughs> that moment where it's just like flipping a light switch, we died um, laughing. The one thing that made me laugh this time, just because I noticed it, is that almost every time they throw something to each other, they miss uh-huh. and yeah. for some reason <laughs> yeah. that was hilarious except for the tape recorder and it's clearly someone tossed it to Cariel with uh-huh. two feet away that made me laugh <laughs> they happen to have perfect aim on the second cut but not yeah. when they first throw it i also love to the detail that the scene where they think oh they have the camera they can see us let's turn off the lights and that way like they won't be able to see what we're doing or whatever initially the idea was Oh, there's a pipe running from you to me. Let's use the saws to cut through the pipes. That way we can like talk to each other through the pipe and be really quiet Mm -hmm. about it, right? But then the logic is, wait, how the fuck are you going to cut through this steel pipe if you can't cut through the steel chains, right? So they like drop that pretty quick. Yeah. Let's see. We already talked about the car chase and the fact that they were missing a ton of coverage and transition scenes when they were done. Had (laughs) had this movie out with stills and newspaper clippings. I wonder. So one thing that I kind of don't like about this movie and that I do think is a genuine weakness and not just, oh, this is a style thing that I don't know if I like. I feel like the movie does not trust viewers to be following along with the plot. Yes. Especially at the end when it does that recap of here's the, the flashing of yeah. everything that happened. And now you understand. Like, no, I understand because I was just watching. Yeah, it plays that music. I don't love that, but I wonder if that's sort of a problem. See, of- I love that. I did like it, too. <laughs> That's the thing, like, I actually kind of like it, To me, it, it feels like a problem of, oh, well, we had to add more stuff. So, like, how can we make sure you get it and make sure it connects? Like, we've got a Montage really time, time, baby. Yeah. Let's just reuse all this stuff we already have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a common thing in horror movies, too, that are, like, in this type of franchise where it spends the first 10 minutes of the next movie recapping things that happened in the movie before. It's like, okay, cool. So we only need 62 minutes for this next movie. <laughs> I do like the music cue, and I love how that theme is playing. And it's like shuts the door, and it's like game over. Yeah, like, yep. Every every so fucking good. movie ends like yeah. that. Yeah, I yep. kind of love that. If we're gonna end it on a evil like dark ending, that's a pretty great way to do it. Yeah, I just don't need the recap. It's a little easy to make fun of. Again, in the same way that new metal is kind of easy to make fun of, but there's something about it that I find so endearing. Yeah, that's interesting. That the thing that I read that is there was such a big thing about twists. With these movies where, and you see it in all of them, where it's, oh, revealed at the end that the guy that was a corpse is not a corpse. Well, this is also right in the middle of M. Night Shyamalan, Mr. Twist, baby, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Post Sixth Sense. And so I always read that as, well, look at the twist. You didn't see this coming and now your mind is blown. And you are right that they kind of do a bit too much to be like but you remember this right that's part of the twist i do i was watching it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i was there this movie's only like an hour and 20 minutes so i wasn't that long ago 
I am fine <laughs> when movies, especially like these kinds of mystery movies and crime thriller whodunit movies, I am 100% fine when they do the entire run through this is who done it montage we're going to show you the whole thing we're going to lay the whole plot out the knives out movies are particularly good about this recently mm-hmm. do that show us the whole thing but show it from like a different angle <laughs> show us something that happened 10 seconds before the thing that we were shown earlier that might have been a budget thing though for at least this first well, it one was because it was clear that we didn't shoot all the stuff we needed to to make this movie functional as far as like that trope i don't mind that trope when it is actively revealing new information to the audience like that's where i feel like it works instead of kind of treating the audience like Heather was saying like bum, bum, bum. you didn't actually bum, bum, watch bum. this movie like bum. you just sat here and watched the whole thing remember this that happened 30 minutes ago like yes motherfucker yeah. but again the slow build up to the game over and then yeah. it's, it gave me goosebumps I'll admit yeah, it's good shit so speaking of the music uh, this is like the last big thing I wanted to bring up Derek and I waited for you to come back so Charlie Clauser wrote the score this was his first score which was very inspired by his previous work in industrial hard rock and metal. Clauser is a multi-instrumentalist, engineer, remix artist, and all-around studio guru kind of guy. He started off in a handful of alternative and metal bands in the late 80s, early 90s, but he kind of got in with Trent Reznor when they collaborated on the soundtrack for Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. Holy shit. And then he officially joins Nine Inch Nails in 1994. For the Downward Spiral. Yeah, he works on Downward Spiral, he works on The Fragile, which are like the best, right? And then all the like remix albums and live tours and shit. He was with Nine Inch Nails all the way through 2000 and still did remix shit for another couple of years he was also another major collaborator with rob zombie on both white zombie and his solo stuff he specifically was nominated for a grammy for the rob zombie cover of i'm your boogeyman he did work with marilyn manson disclaimer (laughs) manson is a major part of nothing records i mean that is what it is but yeah his remix of rob zombie's dragula is in the matrix he formed a supergroup called Revenge of the Triads in 2001 with Jason Slater, who was one of the founding members of Third Eye Blind, and then Troy Van Leeuwen from fucking Failure and Perfect Circle, who yeah. the year after this supergroup that didn't actually go anywhere and never officially put out any music, he officially joins Queens of the Stone Age on their songs for the Deaf Tour the year after, and then has just been in the band since. Clouser also worked with David Bowie, Del the Funky Homo Sapiens, specifically on Deltron 3030, which we both love. Typo Negative, Ramstein, Helmet. He's worked on all kinds of shit. And then Clouser would go on to score every entry in the Saw franchise. He did James Wan's Death Sentence and Dead Silence. Resident Evil Extinction, which is the third movie. Uh, the Collection. Yeah, another new metal series. <laughs> did the theme for American Horror Story, which has been on a gajillion seasons now. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Interesting career that he has had. A very new metal-inspired career. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> God bless him. So, yeah. Ultimately, <laughs> Saw premiered at Sundance in January 2004. I believe it closed out Sundance. It's a Sundance film? 
Really? Yeah, lots of stuff goes to Sundance. Sundance is just a film festival. It's not snooty per se. You know? Yeah, I always just think of like art house stuff at Sundance. No, not necessarily. But yeah, it premiered there in January 2004. Lionsgate acquired it for release that October. Initially, they got an NC-17 from the MPAA. They kind of honed it down to an R. Lionsgate initially was just going to put it direct to video. But after it tested super well, they were like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just recut it to an R and actually put it out theatrically. God, what a different world we would be in if it got put out in home video. Like, if oh, yeah. we, I don't know if we'd have the franchise. I don't think so. I don't think the movie really would have gotten any notoriety had it not gotten a theatrical release. We wouldn't have James Wan, probably. Probably not. No. Or he would just be doing rando DTV stuff still. The home video version of this is the original fully unrated version. So, like, how you would watch it now is going to be the most original version. Specifically you, Lauren. Do you have that image imprinted in your head of the sawed-off hand? And that's the box art for Saw? No. Like the DVD? The hand? Yeah, what box art do you guys remember? I remember the fucking poster that rocks. That is a fucking red poster with a black screen printed image of Shawnee Smith in the reverse bear trap looking sideways with crazy eyes and like that being the fucking poster. Not what the sequels all became, which was just teeth or a finger or random body parts with saw worked into the logo. The one that I remember is the one that's purely white and it had the hand and the foot on it. I remember that specifically from Blockbuster because like Blockbuster had a row of these DVDs when it came out, but I could not remember for the life of me like what the actual movie poster was. Yeah. So anytime like I think of Saw, I think of the one that has the limbs on the pure white cover. That was the home video release art, but I'm pretty okay. sure the Shawnee Smith poster that I just mentioned is the actual theatrical poster for it. See, I remember that one. I remember it being all black, though. There were different versions of it. But yeah, the there was image, like an all black yeah. version, but it was like the same image. Yeah, and it was kind of like a screen printed look. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, Lionsgate held a Give Till It Hurts blood drive for Red Cross at a bunch of theaters across the country, and they collected over 4,200 pints of blood. Aww. Fun times. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> the ultimate final budget of this movie was $1.2 million. It opened number three on Halloween weekend behind Ray and the remake of The Grudge. Fun times, the 2000s. God, the Grudge remake fucked me up when I first saw it, I'll I'll admit. I haven't seen it (laughs) since it came out, honestly. I don't think it's good, but... I don't remember it being good. Ultimately, the movie grossed $103 million worldwide, making it the most profitable horror movie behind Scream at this time. And what's wild is it made $103 million worldwide as its full theatrical run. It made over $70 million in just VHS and DVD sales as of 2008. So in just the first four years, it made almost as much money in rentals as it did theatrically. Yeah, I feel like this was just a huge sleepover movie. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And like I mentioned earlier, Saw 2, greenlit during opening weekend. So right out the gate, it was a massive hit and it became a franchise and the world didn't look back from there. So and we will one day cover it probably with you, Lauren, um, on our Patreon. Yep. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, final thoughts on song. Yeah. Any final thoughts from you guys? I think I could survive the barbed wire trap. I really <laughs> do. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hit it, boo All right, yeah, okay. That's a good final thought. Lauren, what trap in this saw do you think you could survive? Uh, 
That's such a tough one. And I think part of the issue is that it's really easy to sort of post game where you can go like, yeah, part of the issue with their first bear trap is that she stood up and it started the clock. She could have known that. Yeah. Armchair quarterback of Saul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if I had to choose, I struggled to say which one could I survive. I think if I had to choose, it would be... I mean, none of them, but maybe the barbed wire. <laughs> yeah. So if I knew I could get the key on the reverse bear trap in quick enough, but then again, you have to kill a man, although you're not, you don't really know they're alive. Oh, she realized he wakes up. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so, yeah. they make eye contact and everything. Yeah. So like, I want to say I could maybe do that if I knew I could get the key in the slot, but like that thing is such a menacing, unknowable contraption. I think I would have a panic attack and then get killed. <laughs> so I would probably say the barbed wire as well, but like I know for a fact the one that would for sure kill my ass would be the one where you're covered in like flammable liquid and you're naked in the dark room mm-hmm. and you only yeah. have matches oh, to see. No way. That one would kill my ass so fast. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No chance. Because then I would get confused about which number I'm trying to put in the combo lock or like which ones have I already done. Yeah. That would be bad. One last question for you guys. Is that music cue with a da-da-da, da-da-da? leading up to the game over is that also in every one of the saws yeah going forward that particular track is actually called hello zep it's still referred to as hello zep throughout all the movies on the soundtracks and everything yeah that's just the name of the music cue i'm gonna see if that is on spotify maybe throw that one (laughs) (laughs) why not all right cool (laughs) uh i guess that is it for this week's episode of Watch if you dare. Our podcast where uh, we get together and talk about how we're grateful for all the things we have and the wonderful people that come on this show, like our <laughs> wives and family and friends. Good times. We we do appreciate things. We do deserve to live. Turns out. Anyway, thank y'all. Aren't you guys glad I got that email? Yeah. Womp womp. <laughs> oh no! I hear beeping underneath my chair. Oh no! <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Big thanks, Lauren, to you and my lovely wife, Heather, for coming on and joining us this episode. Very much appreciate it. Lauren, is there anything that you want to plug or anything specific that you want to mention? Where can people find you, I guess, if you want to be found? Not particularly. One thought I did have when you mentioned Knives Out, there is the show Poker Face on Peacock. I watch it with my mom and it is wonderful. So it's not horror. But it's really, really good. Heather, is there anything in particular you want to plug or mention? Not necessarily. First of all, I want to plug my ancient son, my 13-year-old dog, Neville, who has been sitting at my feet for like the last 15 minutes of this recording going. Yeah, we're not abusing him or anything. So yeah, if you hear that, that's my old dog sitting with us. I am on Twitter at it's Heather Murr. So I-T-S-H-E-A-T-H-E-R-M-U-R-R. Mostly I talk about things that the cops or the government does that make me angry and shit post about Pokemon. <laughs> so that that might be a niche audience. But if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter. Otherwise, I'm around. Happy to come on. I always enjoy getting to come on and, and talk about this stuff with you guys. So thanks for having me. Yeah. And we love having you on, my Aww. boo. Um, cool. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that is it for this week's episode. So as always. Find all of our future and past episodes on, you know, whatever podcatcher you use. We're on all of them at this point. We are at Watch If You Dare, social media, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, Check us out there. As mentioned at the top of the episode, we now have a Patreon where you can join the Spoop Troop. 
and become a member of the Watch If You Dare camp. Uh, we have yeah. bonus content available for five bucks a month that helps keep this system running that we use to record, pays for equipment, pays for hosting, pays for childcare for Derek Sitter. Uh, just it's going to pay for <laughs> lots of things that we need to keep this show running. Yeah, it keeps it ad free. Yeah, definitely ad free as long as we possibly can. We're not going to be hawking, you know, mattresses and ball shavers to you guys. Also, we want to keep it available on all platforms, so this helps us do that. Again, cup of coffee a month. You can get some bonus content. We're doing franchise deep dives like Saw. We're probably going to do Saw. Probably going to do Saw. Wing, wing, wing. We do list episodes. That's where our interviews are going to go. We're going to have commentary tracks there. So uh, we've already started. We are digging into Gravity Falls right now for horror TV for kids. Such a good fucking show. God, it's such a good show. Yeah, you say it's for kids. Aaron has not been watching this entirely with me, but I've been watching episodes here and there. And it's very funny. You don't have to be a kid to enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's very, very funny. We mentioned on our Patreon episode, we have busted gut a few times yeah. Yeah. on almost every episode. Yeah. yeah, It's good stuff. Fun times. And then, as always, big thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the music bumps at the beginning and ends of all of our episodes, as well as our Patreon bonus content. You can find more of his stuff at Opossums, at Party Gator, at Big Clown? At, I don't know, he's got a ton of stuff. It's all on Bandcamp. Go check it out. Grab some tunes. Throw him a couple of bucks. He would appreciate it. Uh, am I missing anything? Oh, Spotify playlist. That is now pinned playlist, on yeah. our Facebook because Twitter fucking sucks now and is dumb and we can't post multiple links to things. So. To be fair, you can only do one pinned post on Twitter at a time and it's always been that way. So I, I unpinned it for our Patreon page because I think that's a little more important. But Twitter still sucks. <laughs> yeah. Just in general. On our Twitter profile and our Facebook page, you can get the link to our Podbean website, which is our main website. And that has links to everything, including the Patreon and the Spotify playlist on it. So if all else fails, go to our Podbean website. Cool. All right. Good times. I've enjoyed spending time with all of y'all. This was fun. So I guess we're all going to leave now and go our separate ways. Have a good night. And definitely not end up in the Saw 3 house where everybody's trapped together and has to get out. I don't. Yeah. I, I love you guys, but that doesn't seem like a good way to uh, continue our relationship. Um, Actually, that was Saw 2. Oh, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> I'm out. Well, I hope nobody gets any other emails from, you know, other people. And I hope none of us have any suspicious packages that show up or anything like that. So guess that's it. Goodbye. Oh, you guys didn't get this email from Sally? Uh, Aaron, do you like to play? I, I got nothing. So uh, wrap it up or uh, you'll get your fucking dick chopped off or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, we didn't plan out. We didn't plan out the ending. Cut the episode. What a beautiful response to a saw trap. Sure. Why not? Just, whatever. It's fine. Whatever. Figure it out later. <laughs>